G'day mate, Forty here. It's a Sunday morning. What I like to do on my Sunday mornings is hang out a little bit with the big book from Alcoholics Anonymous. Usually pick a chapter and then I come to the big book with three primary questions. Like, why am I bothering to do this? Why am I doing this work? Why am I doing it now? And in what areas of my life am I being dishonest with myself and with other people? And so today I was working through, I believe, chapter two, there is a solution. And I just thought this was so applicable to various political developments. There is a solution. Almost none of us liked the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. So you see with all the massive dysfunction revealed in the Nick Fuentes, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, controversies, just how much dysfunction is going on because, you know, people aren't taking any time to consider the effect of their words and their behavior on other people. So if you don't think about what your boss wants from you, right, if you don't take into consideration your boss, right, you're not going to retain that boss for long. You're going to get fired. If you don't take into consideration what your spouse wants from you, you're not going to retain that spouse for long, right? You're going to be you're going to be uh, left alone. If you don't take your friends into consideration, like I tried to imbibe, I tried to carry around with me a sense of the most important people in my life, and kind of integrate them into myself and spare a little thought for their well-being and a little consideration for how you know, anything that I may say or, or do publicly, how that might then feed back onto them. So I'm not walking around just 100% seeking God's will in my life, right? I'm not 100% walking around thinking about how can I help other people. I'm talking about 5% awareness. I'm talking possibly 10% awareness. If you can walk around with uh, 5% awareness of what other people need from you, want from you, or 5% awareness of what God wants from you, five to ten percent awareness of how you can be useful and helpful to other people if you can just maybe five percent of the time think about other people and what would be the repercussions whatever you say and do on them that in my experience just results in a dramatically improved quality of life uh otherwise you get these levels of dysfunction that we're we're seeing from i have uh, an external hard drive i'll show it to you now This is called the vault. This is the vault. This has shit on everyone you have ever heard of. Video, pictures, emails, audio, text messages, phone calls, anything you would ever really want to know about every public figure I have ever encountered. Most of the conversations I've had with people when I've been in a single party consent state, recorded, archived. I have shit on everyone. And I'm now in a position in my career where I'm perfectly happy to start dropping it all. So I have a lot of crap on Richard Spencer um, and, 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 and everybody else. And uh, well, well, maybe there is a reason to sign up for Telegram after all. Uh, so so uh, watch this space. Thanks. I have uh, uh, an external hard drive. I'll show it to you now. Okay, so if you if you connect yourself to someone like that, you're going to be in for you know a whole lot of hurt. So what is a, a politics that works? Uh, a politics that works takes into consideration the effect of your policies on your supporters, on your neighbors, all right, on your fellow members of your community and of your nation. For example, the abortion issue was useful for Republicans to knit together disparate 
communities in, in support of this traditional perspective on life begins at conception. So it was a way of knitting together Catholics who long held that uh, life be begins at conception, evangelical Christians, uh, much of the Protestant movement, and just uh, many traditionalists, all right, who are increasingly uncomfortable with the libertine, libertarian, hedonistic approach of, you know, the secular humanist approach to sex and to love. And so the abortion issue was a way for Republicans to kind of unite all these disparate elements of communities that were possibly supporters for them and, you know, get them marching under the same banner. It wasn't primarily about abortion itself, all right? It was a message. It was an emblem. It was a symbol, all right? It was an organizing principle. Now, Republicans captured the Supreme Court, and they got an invalidation of Roe versus Wade, and they got confused that, uh, that th this abortion issue, which they'd been campaigning on and talking about, so passionately intensely intensely for about 50 years was the real deal and it wasn't all right uh campaigning on a pro-life platform campaigning on a platform of making abortion illegal all right has proved to be highly unpopular so you can't get confused between the symbol and a principle and a rhetorical device and an organization device for the real thing right there's not a long history in christianity of being opposed to abortion like abortion is not one of the prime focuses of the, the Christian tradition, right? This was an artificially created issue that was, you know, brought about and funded and driven forward as a politically, you know, useful organizing device for all these disparate communities. But now when you confuse the symbol for the reality, when you, when you confuse the map for the territory, right, when you stop taking into account the effect of, say, criminalizing abortion at all times all right on your community and how it affects other people and how it affects likely voters for your coalition you got to get into a great deal of trouble and this is what uh, republicans have gotten into right a, a great deal of trouble right they've you know lost the sense of how this affects other people and they've lost themselves in the rhetoric all right it's just so easy to get caught up in the rhetoric and so us versus them rhetoric is is useful right having a sense of your own group and your distinctions with different groups is, is useful having some resentment for out groups who don't share what what unites your in group right that's useful but when you take that intensity level from two out of ten or three out of ten to five six seven eight nine or ten out of ten as you see with many of the people on the alt-right or the alt-left, then it just absolutely warps your life. So another factor that you see in the political extremes is a drive to just, you know, punish and destroy your enemies. And in America today, if you have that operating at like a 2 out of 10, perfectly useful, normal, natural. But for people on the extremes, it becomes the dominating energizing force, and then it just turns on each other, which is what you see with the Milo Yiannopoulos, Richard Spencer, uh, just all the, the feuds in the, the alt-right, feuds within the Black Lives Matter movement where people were getting rich from Black Lives Matter and therefore alienating themselves from the community that they were trying to build up. So when you lose a sense of your community, 
right? <laughs> when you lose the sense of how well my words, my behaviors, the things that I'm promoting affect the, the people around me, right? When you start ignoring that, then you run onto the rocks, right? Then your, your community, your, your movement, and your life starts to fall apart. So here is a more thoughtful approach from Cambridge scholar Nathan Carpenter. And then Jonathan Haidt, who has publicly stated that he knows the truth, has come out just endorsing the woke narrative on race and saying that slavery never ended, it just changed form. That's what he said. Welcome to the Aporia podcast. This week, Diana Fleischman speaks with Cambridge philosopher Nathan Kofnes. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you'll love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hi, I'm Diana Fleischman, and today we have Nathan Kofnes joining us to talk about his somewhat viral article about the heterodox academy and what he sees as its major failures. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Yeah, Diana Fleischman, she's married to another evolutionary biologist. They are consistently interesting. Jeffrey Miller is who she's uh, married to. So what's going on with uh, Taiwan and U.S. support for Taiwan? Let's get uh, a brief Burst on that here from Fox News. One, I mean, his age is not really the issue. It's his proximity and access, which he was granted a top secret clearance. And they have to assume that the process was followed according, mm -hmm. uh, which means that if this individual is able to do all this, then there's probably something wrong with the way that we're screening folks. Mm -hmm. The other is the physical security of the information. There's lots of things I haven't seen, and I will not look at the classified documents that are out on the web. But what I can tell is the fact that they were photographed tells me that it might have been smuggled out or was taken to a place where he could take photographs and put forward. So there's a physical security part. And so both those questions need to be addressed by Congress. One of the key revelations, Taiwan is vulnerable. Let's put it on the screen. Mm. Quote, the assessment state that Taiwan officials doubt their air defenses can accurately detect missile launches, that barely more than half of Taiwan's aircraft are fully mission capable, and that moving the jets to shelters would take at least a week, a huge problem if China launched missiles before Taiwan had a chance to disperse those planes. How do you respond to those concerns? Oh, well, for one, I don't think the United States is in a much better position in the, either in the Western Pacific or even at home if China was to go to that degree of a open warfare. Uh, that being said, I am not as skeptical that Taiwan couldn't hold in on a fight. Uh, Ukraine is a perfect example of this. Don't underestimate the will of the Taiwanese people to stand up to what could be a very violent suppression of many of those people and purge that would follow. Uh, so I give them a lot more credit for holding out and fighting off the Chinese. Success, however, will depend on the United States providing arms and ammunition as well as support. Let's talk about that a little bit. What more does the Biden administration need to do to thwart these Chinese threats against Taiwan? Well, the first thing is they need to be very clear about what American red lines are and then back that up quietly, but with a significant military presence. Now, Admiral Aquilino out in Hawaii at the Indo-Pacific Command has done a pretty good job of maintaining a fairly significant naval presence, but that's not good enough. There has to be the diplomatic, the economic side also needs to be a bigger stick than it is. There have been some... Okay, Ricardo, my friend, is in the chat. He says Luke doesn't want to surround himself with marginalized losers, but he loves spectating on a bunch of pigs rolling in the mud. Yes, I like to watch boxing. I have no desire to partake in boxing. I like on occasion to watch uh, auto racing. I have no desire to race cars at 300 miles an hour around a track. It's, you know, way too dangerous for my well-being. Uh, I like to watch the, the National Football League. I have no desire to play tackle football myself. Uh, I 
reported on organized crime for many years. I had no desire to participate in the organized crime industry. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan, but I have zero desire of going to Taiwan to risk my life fighting for Taiwan. So Ricardo says, if you stare too long into the abyss, it stares back. Okay, a quote from uh, Nietzsche. If you stare too long into the abyss, it stares back into you. Uh, I don't know. There are police. Okay, so there are police who work in dangerous neighborhoods with dangerous people. And they manage to do it for 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35 40 years and and at the same time they marry and they have kids and they seem to live fully functional lives so I would say some people can't stare too long into the abyss and other people right can do it so there are pastors who work with adulterers and child molesters and you know people committing you know white-collar felonies and there are pastors who visit prisons regularly and deal with uh, murderers and torturers and rapists and all sorts of vile people. So some people devote their lives working with vile people and they do not become vile. So some people can't handle that, right? Not everyone is cut out to go to prison on a regular basis to work with murderers, killers, torturers and rapists and child molesters. Other people seem to thrive doing that. So, yeah, some people can stare into the abyss and some people can't. And so one has to become aware of yourself and the effect that it has on you, right? So you may be cut out to be a social worker who deals with the dysfunctional and the addicted and just horrible people and you just deal with them all day long, 40 hours a week, year after year. And not everyone's cut out for that. Other people are. Forty deludes himself if he doesn't think he gets muddy by reporting on freaks like Ali and Milo. Luke is a rabbi ministering to the alt-right. Well, some people can stare into the abyss. Some people can work with people in the abyss. And some people can't. And uh, do, do I get muddy if I report on uh, people like you know, Ali Alexander and Milo Yiannopoulos. I, I'm not sure. I'll just leave that as an open question. I, I'm glad that uh, Ricardo was, was, uh, you know, Ricardo's got gifts that I don't have. So he's got this like an intuitive sense of things, which uh, he comes at things often with, with a perspective I never would have thought of. Luke was born to point and to laugh at marginalized losers. I would say that Luke identifies with marginalized losers. All right, Luke has lived a lot of his life on the margins. So when I talk about someone like Richard Spencer, like I identify with that enormous thirst for attention that overrides every other consideration. All right, when, when, when I see Richard Spencer and how far his, his thirst for adulation, adoration, attention for developing a following boy, do I resonate with that. I, I've experienced that same thirst. I, I still feel it at times. And that, that willingness to sacrifice everything to get one more hit of 
you know, attention and possible adoration. I identify with that. Therefore, because I identify with, you know, Richard Spencer's thirst for adulation and admiration, I think I then have some useful things to say about his commentary because I've been there and I'm still there at times. And so I know what it's like to be willing to blow up everything, right? To have no concern for the people around you, to have no concern for your the people who pay attention to you, who follow you, no concern for your loved ones, no concern for your friends, family, community, for every value that you stand for, because you are so captured by your thirst for adulation and admiration, because that has been a pretty big stream, sometimes subterranean, frequently very much on the surface, just running through my life. So I think I have something to say there. I know what it's like to be marginalized and to try to, you know, find a way forward when you've been marginalized by polite society. And how do you then hold yourself together when polite society thinks that you are disgusting? So the the easiest way to do that is to think, ah, I am the brave truth teller. Right? I am willing to face hard truths that polite society is not willing to face. I am willing to say hard truths that polite society is not willing to say. Therefore, I am the real hero, right? We all need to feel heroic. And so when you're doing a show like I do, or when you're doing a show like Dennis Prager does, or when you're a commentator like uh, Richard Spencer, right, there is a tremendous need, drive, stimulus response to provide something to people that they can't get from the New York Times. Like if all I did on this show was repeat back to you the received wisdom from the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, then there'd be absolutely no reason to consult this show. If all Dennis Prager did was to repeat back the conventional wisdom from the mainstream media, there would be no reason to listen to Dennis Prager. So there is a tremendous stimulus towards conspiracy theories. If you just simply do a show like this or do a nationally syndicated radio talk show, right, you have to come with something special that people don't get from the conventional sources of wisdom. And so there is this drive that will lead you onto the margins. There's this drive that uh, you have to have something special for people that they can't get from conventional sources. And so where can you consistently get something special that people can't get from conventional sources? All right. You increasingly will look to the insights and the inspiration from other people on the margins who are trying to provide something special that people can't get from conventional sources. And so there is a tremendous incentive to sell out reality to sell out a commitment to truth, to serve the stimulus of maintaining an audience. And the only way to maintain an audience, whether you're a Tucker Carlson or a Dennis Prager or Richard Spencer or a Milo Yiannopoulos, or who's that bored-headed blogger who was into uh, QAnon I, and now I think lives in Italy, he, uh, Vox Day, okay, your Vox Day, or J.F. Garupi, uh, Dennis Dale, or Kevin Michael Grace, you have to come with something that people can't get elsewhere. And so there's a tremendous incentive to exaggerate your own importance, your own wisdom. And there's this tremendous incentive to, 
you know, buy into conspiracy theories to keep what you're doing exciting and special. And so I recognize those incentives operating on me, recognize those incentives operating on Dennis Prager, and recognize those, you know, incentives on every live streamer. And I think I have something to say about them because I think, I think I know of a solution, right? That sounds incredibly arrogant, but uh, I think I know of a solution, and it's it's not unique to me, but it's a uh, it's a solution that is is articulated in in the twelve steps. But it it's really having a vivid sense of the people who are most important to you, and having a vivid sense of your people, and carrying around an understanding of their well-being and how your behavior and your words affects them. Like most people who do a live stream or a podcast on hot button controversial issues, you know, burn things down. They burn down their life. They damage people around them. But if you're able to, so to speak, have a picture of the ones that you love, like on your mind or on your computer screen, and you take into consideration what I'm about to say, how does it affect them? All right. So Abortion, for example, for Republicans, tremendous issue to organize around. But did you confuse the map for the territory? Did you confuse the symbolism and the rhetoric for the reality? Because the reality of trying to make abortion illegal in, in all instances will be a political disaster for Republicans. So for a long time, it was a very effective organizing principle. But if you confuse the principle with the reality, if you lose sense of the well-being of your people because you've gotten so carried away by your rhetoric, by that feeling of, of righteousness, you've gotten intoxicated by your, your rhetorical flourishes about you're on the side of life, right? Then you have ceased to be useful to your people and you become a detriment. Okay, Ricardo says, Fox News is Prager-tier disinformation. Uh, sometimes, and uh, sometimes it's got some good stuff on it. Forty enjoys observing the circus. He does not want to become a circus act himself. True. Luke is a rabbi ministering to the alt-right. I think, Luke, there is a tiny element of that. Right? I, I think there is a tiny number of people on a number of occasions who have found something that I've had to say useful. And so if I'm helpful to, to someone like from doing this show, then, yeah, there is an element of Luke is a rabbi ministering to the alt-right. But primarily, Luke uh, enjoys live streaming like other people enjoy playing chess or uh, woodworking, building a bench, uh, you know, what, working on a car, right? This is my form of playing chess or doing woodwork, right? I, I enjoy the, the challenge and the stimulus. The chat says this is good fun. Luke was born to point and laugh at more marginalized losers. So pointing and laughing. All right. So I think that is inherently human. I, I think that... Uh, I don't think we ever get to totally transcend that, nor should we want to transcend that completely. But there should be also an element of empathy there and the ability to you know, recognize yourself in the bad behavior of other people and 
an ability to empathize with other people who you're talking about. Ricardo says, best thing that happened to me was almost getting doxxed. It broke the spell of being an e-personality. Live streaming is a drug. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not saying absolutely that that was the best thing for you, but absolutely with that point. So I, I don't want to talk about, you know, Ricardo, the individual behind, you know, the Ricardo name and his, his life situation, but almost getting doxxed and, you know, getting tuned into the dangers of the e-personality is vitally important. So for some people, what they need to do is literally have a picture of their wife, of their father, of their boss, of their girlfriend, of their children, of their best friends. They literally need to have a picture of these people who are most important to them on their screen so that you don't say or do anything on a live stream that will damage them or will cause them to feel you know, a sense of re repulsion. So I don't do that, but I figuratively have a picture of my closest friends in the world, like in my head, you know, on my heart when I speak. So I do try to modulate what I say by taking them into account. And if you just have a vivid sense of the ones that you love, right, when you're live streaming, you're not likely to get into trouble. I I'll give you as an example, the difference between Casey when he was on this show and Casey when he went off on his own. When Casey was on this show, he never said anything that would destroy his life. But off the show, he was tweeting and blogging and saying things that could you know, very well destroy his life. But when he was interacting with, with me, I, I don't recall him ever saying anything that would, would blow up his life. But when you lose that, that sense of connection, lose that, that audience, and you lose that sense of you know, the repercussions of what you say and do on the people that you love, then you get into a great deal of trouble. And that is the dangers of the e-personality, all right, where you forget that there are consequences for what you say. So live streaming is a drug. Yes, absolutely is a drug. Uh, extreme exercise can act as a drug. Uh, extreme cold showers, uh, extreme religion, uh, extreme anything. All sorts of watching sports can be a drug. So just because something is a drug, can be a drug, doesn't mean that uh, it's going to be bad for, for everyone. It means that it's dangerous. Live streaming is dangerous. It, it is not in the best interest for many, many people who think they can handle it. And I have no idea of, say, possible opportunities or, or connections, relationships, uh, money, income, etc. that uh, I have lost out on because I live stream. From what I know, live streaming has cost me very little because I think that I carry a sense of the people who are most important to me into my live streaming. And I think I've become much more uh, reasonable and responsible since 2019. But uh, I did, you know, a decent enough job from 2016 to 2019 as well. Right-wing e-drama is a drug. Yeah, so drama can, can be a drug, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. You, you can be entertained, you can learn things, and you can take it too far. So if you're spending uh, six hours a day seven days a week on e-drama, that's probably not a, a good use of your time. But really, is, is paying attention to, say, right-wing e-drama, is it uh, 
you know, that much worse of a use of your time than, say, watching sports or watching network TV? I don't think so. So there is a reasonable and responsible amount of uh, e-drama that you can enjoy. <laughs> okay. Carter says, live streaming is a drug. You did that during COVID and January 6th. What did I do during uh, COVID and January 6th? This show was a New York Times affiliated platform in 20... Oh, I think I've always had respect for the New York Times, but I don't think anyone could seriously uh, take in much of this show and think that it just uh, completely aligns with the New York Times perspective on life. Like, I read the New York Times every day. I value the New York Times. This is a very different show than one uh, produced by the New York Times, right? There's a New York Times daily podcast, right? The content of this show is very different from what the New York Times has to say. Luke lost his sponsorship and came back to reality. I'm unaware of a sponsorship that I lost and coming back to reality. Yeah, this is the marketplace of ideas at work. So I'll read something in the New York Times. I'll say, ah, oh, I think this is good. I'll share it with you. And then Laponius or Glib Medley or Ricardo or Elliot Blatt you know, may point out seven different problems with the New York Times article that I thought was great that I would never have thought of. So this is thinking socially. I present to you ideas that I think are important and useful, or, and then you come back at me, just like playing, playing tennis with the net down. <laughs> All right? There's no challenge in that. Right? This is not tennis with the net down. You're firing the ball back at me, and that's where the challenge is. That's where the growth is. That's where I get to expand myself because the chat is constantly coming up with perspectives that I never would have considered in a, in a thousand years. And also the show leads me to phone conversations, to DMs, to meeting up with people in, in person who I would otherwise never, never meet. Yeah, this is the marketplace of ideas at work. Okay, a lot of great stuff here in the chat. 40, will Nick ever recover from these leaks? Yeah, Nick, Nick seems pretty healthy, right? He's not a paragon of health, but he does seem to have a considerable reservoir of shock absorbers in his life. So he has survived this long, and I expect that he will survive these leaks. Luke's audience of anonymous racists should be the most important thing in his life. No, it should not be the most important thing in, in, in my life because I have all sorts of people in my life who I can reach out and touch, who I can see, who, who live a half a mile from me, a quarter mile from me, uh, you know, uh, real, real close. The, the, the people that I see in real life are the most important people to me, not... Uh, people online uh, Nick was always part of the margins but now the margins will refuse to have anything to do with him and his own audience will flee the sinking Nick Tannock says Luke Croft Don is not interested in having a discussion or having a seat at the table real men own the table Ali was always openly bisexual for some reason Nick the self-proclaimed leader of the 
Christo-fascist right chose to surround himself with a bunch of homosexuals. Why did he do this? Because they were useful to him and to his cause. Like, why do we do anything? Because it meets a need in us. We have needs for excitement. We have needs for pleasure. We have needs for connection. We have needs for meaning. We have needs for feeling heroic. And what I've done so far in my life is I've done the best I could to meet my needs with the tools that I had at the time. And so some of the things I am now, you know, a little embarrassed about, they weren't, you know, they weren't very good ways of meeting my needs. Some of the ways that I met my needs meant uh, using other people and mistreating other people. And so I have amends to make there. So if I have, if I have mistreated you, if I have uh, let you down, if I have taken advantage of you, you know, get in touch with me. We, we might need to talk about how I need to make amends to clean up my side of the street. Uh, thoughts on the new Kino Casino studio? I haven't seen it. Don't know anything about it. Okay, so I think I've caught up with the chat, you know, uh, bring it to my attention if I've missed out on anything. Get a little bit more commentary on Taiwan. Some assessments that a Taiwan invasion could happen in 2027. Mm. Some folks predicting even sooner. Could it happen next year during a presidential campaign in this country? So there's a couple points to this. I think, you know, judging by the Chinese, they are risk adverse, but they've spent 20 years doubling and then doubling again their military and modernizing it for just such an occurrence. So they're coming at the end of 20 years of preparing and they think they're about ready. But what really has to be clear is what the United States is willing to do, clearly articulated. You need a Congress that is continuing to provide the resources to build the military that's needed. But the Chinese are also looking at our ability to maintain that force, our logistics, our economic resiliency as well. So, so all fronts. So you've got a forthcoming book. Yes. Dealing with some of these issues. Can you give us a Cliff Notes version of it? Ah. Absolutely. So American statecraft has largely been failing the last decade plus. Now, it's not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. And it's unfortunate we're getting close to a culminating point where the Chinese think it's go time for a war. And so the book actually tries to take not a strategic high level nor a very tactical low level, but hit a sweet spot in the middle about how we navigate this decade and do so by avoiding a war and signaling very clearly what the United States' interests are and do it in a way that's constructive. And the only way you do that is not just fixation on China, but you also have to consider the strategic distraction that's Russia. And so there's an interesting construct that's in it called naval statecraft. And so please buy the book. We're nearly out of time, yes. but does that include investing a lot more in the United States Navy? Absolutely. I think uh, clearly a military that's mobile and can move around the world, that's the Navy. And it can stay there longer than air forces can. So the Navy is really going to be in the forefront of this competition with China uh, for, you know, for years going forward. Brent Sadler, grateful for your time and your analysis. Okay, let's uh, check in on the Kino Casino, see what they're doing. What? Hello out there in Europe, Australia, Newfoundland. Welcome to the Kino Casino. Night two of Kino fucking mania. It's the real Ralph Mania, motherfuckers, and we're going wild. So you need a tremendous amount of energy to be compelling. All right. My, my experience is you need to bring like at least five times the amount of energy that you would bring to a normal conversation to be compelling as a live streamer. And I certainly don't see myself as the, the quintessence of live streaming. 
Ronaldo in the Kino Casino. Let's go! It's time to fucking felt Ralph for the Euro Bros. Euro Bros, you're in for a motherfucking treat up in this bitch. Don't even know. We just did 11 and a half hours on Nick Fuentes. It's fucking time. We took a break, guys. We took a fucking break to eat for the second half. You know what happened, though? Ashton, so we're eating. What do we do? We toss on Ralph show for tonight. Oh, my God. My God. Oh, my It was he was buck broke. He was buck broke. Holy! Fuck, ladies and gentlemen, you this motherfucker it? looks so sad. I've never seen somebody look so defeated in all my life as Ralph was by the end of his show. He's just sitting there, just forlornly staring into space. He goes, "I just can't do it. I just can't do it." The screen like, ends. Like I don't want to be online anymore. It's like I don't want to be online Felt. right now. I can't be do on. this right now. Bros, at one point, he's literally. So he starts the show, right? We watch the first show. He's a half an hour of fucking music playing. He comes on, shows his hair off. Everyone felt him saying it's Everybody purple. Felt him. And then he goes, okay, so what do we have? And his entire chat just goes, Ali's a pedophile. Yeah. Ali's <laughs> a pedophile. Ralph gets like three super chats and they're all this song. Ashton's like, he's upstairs. He goes, how's it going down there? I'm screaming, fuck. And I'm like, this third fucking blue Dabadi song playing for the third time. It was fucking shit. Trying to eat my subway. <laughs> and I'm like screaming the N word in our living room. Oh, it was no. fucking. Guys, tonight, I don't even think there was anything to clip. No. That's how you know we're sick, by the way. There was nothing. That we do 12 hours on Nick Wentz. About to do 12 hours on Ralph. And on our break, we're watching Ralph. I'm you like, know, this like is it's a, just, I, there is no break. It's just like an A-log. A-log banner is A-logging 24 hours, 7. 7 days a week. 24-7, 365, boots to America first. Asses in this motherfucker. <laughs> this is fucking America first. Uh, I don't even fucking take a break A-logging these fuckers in my sleep. Do you understand me? I fucking A-log these fuckers in my sleep. I rebut their bullshit arguments. A fucking comatose PPP could felt these faggots. That's the fucking reality. That's the true fucking facts. And that's the bottom line. Because PPP said so, so bitch. You get the second win, You folks. take that fucking son of a bitch, fucking twist her up sideways and stick it up Ralph's candy fucking gun to ass. Dude. Bitch ass motherfucker. Ralph, Ralph looked beyond defeated. Like, no, actually just pointing like, you're over. Like, that was over, screaming. bros. It's over. Let's go. Get up. Where is Ralph at? Where's up. the sunrise at, motherfuckers? Where is the fucking sunrise? It's always sunny in A-Log Manor, bitches. The sun never sets on A-Log Manor. 24 hours a day. Ain't no fucking play. A fucking joke to the Kino Casino. The house never closes. It's open for always business 24-7. Oh, boy, I can't say that word on this fucking... Woo, buddy. Whoa, buddy. Everyone go retweet my tweet. Tweet Ashton's tweet. The casino never closes. Except oh. for after the 12 hours, we're going to sleep probably for oh, 20 hours. But fuck. then we have Cooking with Worski on Monday. By Cooking the way, Monday ton night. of you come, Road members, while we're, while we're doing our last show. You want to subscribe now. There's going to be tons of fucking content. Four time slot. <laughs> but we don't give a damn. Fuck off with Johnny. Johnny and his bum ass that squad. fucking scum. Wow. Okay. Uh, uh, had to know how to, how to comment on that but uh, uh how how sustainable is that level of uh of energy and uh hype i'm somewhat skeptical all right so certainly a lot of fun a lot of energy there but not necessarily a lot of uh high iq content as opposed to 
Nathan Kaufness. Well, I'm honored to be your first guest. <laughs> um, so let's let's go a little bit into the, the history here. For those of you who are not familiar with Heterodox Academy, uh, it was founded in 2015. The aim is somewhat waffly is to increase viewpoint diversity. I've heard from a lot of people that they're not exactly sure what that means, and uh, it does seem like quite a quite an expansive concept. And I think Nathan, you were involved with Heterodox Academy at the outset, were you not? Not formally, although I would have been, but I was a graduate student at the time, and back then, uh, graduate students weren't allowed to join. But I was certainly, uh, you know, very enthusiastic about it and rooting for them. And uh, although, you know, they certainly became very wishy-washy, but um, in the early days, uh, Jonathan Haidt sort of seemed like he meant business, and he was seemed to be highlighting, you know, uh, the problems. And, um, you know, many people thought that this was the beginning of something, of some meaningful pushback. Uh, but as we'll discuss, uh, they, they took a turn and didn't work out that way. So for those of you who don't know, John Haidt is an NYU professor of psychology. He wrote with Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind, which I thought had a lot of really great ideas about how it... So what goes on in academia right, has 1,000, usually 10,000 times more effect on society than what goes on with a bunch of you know, meth-addicted high school dropouts. So not, not as exciting right, as uh, PPP, but more consequential. Education could be improved. And he also wrote The Righteous Mind, which uh, I think is a great book. Uh, some people disagree with the, the foundation's theory therein. Um, so you had high hopes for, for Heterodox Academy at the outset. And why were you motivated to write this piece now about Heterodox Academy? Well, uh, actually, I was motivated to write this piece about three years ago. And uh, this is its own story, which might, um, might be interesting to discuss without getting into too many details. Um, uh, but it was very difficult to publish this. Um, and uh, I don't want to name names, uh, but, um, you know, on the right, on in the heterodox conservative uh, world, um, you know, there's certain people that it's very difficult to, to, to criticize. And I think that is part of the, of the reason we got to this situation is it's so difficult. Um, you know, I'm not the first person at all to have these concerns. And we saw uh, the response to the article, I think, clearly shows that, you know, this was bubbling, you know, beneath the surface, a lot of dissatisfaction. Um, at every heterodox, you know, academy conference, people have been raising these complaints, but it's just not being amplified. Uh, and, uh, you know, yes, I had to jump through uh, a lot of hoops to just get this message out there. Yeah, my impression also is... I know I'm a member of Heterodox Academy. I know John Haidt is that he's a very agreeable person that Heterodox Academy has assiduously. So Nathan Kaufness often had trouble publishing his ideas because his ideas are not you know, politically correct. His ideas are on the, on the margins of the Overton window. And so he, he had a choice. He could have published it just on a blog he could have published through you know dissident online publications but he had a strategy of working within academia so he had ideas that he wanted to express but he chose not to publish them in places where Noah Carr for example frequently published so Noah Carr was another you know young uh, fellow at uh, Oxford or Cambridge and because Noah Carr published in you know, more dissident publications, Noah Carr was far more vulnerable to being cancelled, and Noah Carr, a young scholar, eventually did get, get fired from an elite British university. So Nathan Kofnis has played the game differently. He's played the game more carefully. He has been, you know, quite judicious where he has published, 
and so far he seems to be playing the game successfully he's a fellow at uh, at cambridge university so that took some self-control right he, he had this piece for years that he was trying to publish and all the conservative outlets were not interested in publishing it so he could have compromised on his views he could have watered them down or he could have chosen to publish his thoughts in a dissident publication he chose neither he just kept looking for a highbrow publication that would allow him to say what he wanted and it took him years to do it they avoided uh, controversy really and they have you know as, as you say in your piece they've really tried to be a big tent movement and there are some costs to being a big tent movement which is that nothing really really happens so in your piece for academic questions you basically say that heterodox academy is paying lip service to heterodoxy and not taking genuine heterodoxy uh, seriously as we've discussed you know heterodoxy is kind of a slippery concept um, how would you define it and how do you think really what's the disparity between what you think is heterodoxy and what you think the heterodox academy is actually doing well i don't uh, i've come to dislike the idea of heterodoxy um because i, I mean sometimes or frequently the orthodoxy is uh, just fine and doesn't we can't challenge every established uh, fact uh, so you know if you have a university uh, there has to be some standard for you know, we, where we decide that you know we're not going to hire flat earthers or um, young earth creationists so uh, the idea of promoting heterodoxy per se I think is confusing or incoherent um, but to interpret it in a more charitable way, I think it, it just means stop discriminating against people for expressing views or exploring, uh, you know, areas areas of inquiry that are legitimate according to uh, accepted standard intellectual scholarly standards. Uh, so that's what I imagined it meant uh, at the beginning. Yeah. And what kinds of, you, you go into a little bit, I, I've actually seen some responses to your piece, which have actual actionable ideas about what, what Heterodox Academy should should do, which we'll go into a little bit later. Um, but it seems like Heterodox Academy in 2015 was... So Nathan Kofnes has now followed up on his initial piece on four reasons why Heterodox Academy has failed. And he's just come out with a new essay. For seven years, Heterodox Academy, that's Jonathan Haidt's creation, has supposedly been promoting viewpoint diversity in academia. Also in that time period, dissenters from woke orthodoxy have been crushed and a totalitarian monoculture has become supreme. In my article, Four Reasons Why Heterodox Academy Failed, I said that those of us who are unhappy about the current situation can look to Heterodox Academy for lessons about what not to do. And so looking at people like Milo Yiannopoulos or Richard Spencer or uh, Nick Fuentes, all right, uh, Vox Day, there are a lot of lessons about not about what not to do, right? You can learn from other people's mistakes. Now that we know what not to do, what should we do? So here's a great point from Kafnis. Being a loser can turn into a habit, an identity, and a perverse satisfaction. So if you consistently lose, you're going to find ways to reinterpret your losing in your mind so that you're really a winner. But if you consistently lose, you're going to be marginalized and your social connections are going to be diminished and your effectiveness is going to be reduced. So if losing turns into a habit, right, be careful when it turns into a perverse satisfaction. Right? That's when you're really that's when you're really on a, a bad direction in life when when 
losing just turns into a perverse satisfaction. It's a justification that you're really right and everyone else is wrong. This is especially likely to happen when victory seems impossibly distant, as it does in the fight to rescue universities and all mainstream institutions from the madness that has overtaken them. The woke juggernaut seems inexorable and woe to those who provoke the juggernaut. But as Immanuel Kant observes, whoever wills the end also wills the indispensable necessary means. Yes. You know why you're fighting? Right, you will be willing to, you know, endure the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. Right, if you are dedicated to truth, I like to think that I'm dedicated to truth. That doesn't mean that I share every truth that I believe uh, on YouTube. Doesn't mean that I share every truth that I believe uh, publicly. But I try to draw a pretty sharp distinction in my mind between what is true and what are lies, and even if it's not opportune for me to say the truth in certain areas, right? I don't want to delude myself into going along with uh, going along with lies. So the first thing we have to do is decide whether we are prepared to will the necessary means to achieve victory. So is there any chance that Heterodox Academy can be reformed and start providing effective leadership? I'm afraid not. In my article, I argue that Heterodox Academy failed for four main reasons. It became another club for leftists. It refuses to leverage political power. Its leaders are trying to make a big tent movement to include people who are enemies of free inquiry, and it won't support heterodoxy on the most important topic, racial differences. So the new president of Heterodox Academy, John Tomasi, published a reply which confirmed that nothing is going to change. So what is our goal? We want to create a culture at universities that promotes free speech and open inquiry into all areas of legitimate scholarship. What stands in the way? system that enforces conformity with a political orthodoxy called wokeism. Wokeism has no official catechism, it takes a variety of forms, but the essence of the ideology is that disparities between certain groups call for an ever-escalating war on white racism and sexism, which then justifies all manners of censorship and suppression. So wokeism means, another understanding of wokeism is that there are certain sacred groups such as Jews, blacks, gays, homosexuals, uh, transgendered, etc., who cannot be criticized. So whenever wokeism has the upper hand, free speech and open inquiry are deemed violence, hate, and racism. Right? There is no such thing as being pro-heterodoxy without being anti-woke. So do we even deserve to succeed in this struggle if we refuse to ever be uncomfortable or to take genuine risks? Do we deserve to win if we are forever waiting for the right time to take a stand till we get tenure, promotion to full professor, another honorary doctorate, or a Nobel Prize? In any case, we're guaranteed to fail if we're unwilling to take radical action starting now. Here I describe three things that we must do to change the cultural trajectory and take back universities. Right, this doesn't mean that everyone needs to be taking radical action or brave action. All right. Uh, the most important thing that uh, I would think most people need to do is to be a good husband, a good wife, a good uh, son or daughter, you know, a good father or mother, a good neighbor, a valued member of your community, uh, a valued employee, right? Uh, someone who is, you know, progressing with their education, with their career, all right? Those, those should be the primary concerns for most people. On the other hand, there are people like Nathan Kofnis, who you know are dedicated to intellectual inquiry who you know has the raw cognitive processing power and the academic expertise to make a difference in this world is really intent on battling one aspect of, of wokeness and some people shy away from using the word wokeness you use the word wokeness and 
you use a different noun version of wokeness. What do you call it? The wokeism. wokeism that's right. Um, some people are shy about using that word. Uh, and so I think around 2015, that was when there was a lot of canceling of speakers. There was people being shouted down. There were protests and people were less comfortable, you know, expressing themselves in classrooms. That was something that, that uh, John Haidt was talking about a lot. And so um, this aspect of it seemed kind of front and center. In your estimation, has Heterodox Academy battled this one aspect of wokeness? They haven't done anything. They've, what have they done? They had some conferences uh, where uh, and there was there was nobody, essentially no conservatives at the conference uh, at the conferences. It was you know people like uh, Jason Stanley and um, you know okay John McWhorter. Uh, I'm going to talk about him a, a little more. He's one of those those people that uh, at one well-known magazine, I was very close to to publishing it. Uh, they had accepted it. They sent me the contract to sign, and but they were saying I have to take out the criticism of John McWhorter. And I said, well, why? You know, no real explanation. Just you can't do that. Um, so they'd already cut out a lot of other stuff. And I said, so that's uh, National Review. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's National Review. So why did Steve Saylor stop publishing at National Review? Because National Review would not allow him to list that he was a, uh, a weekly columnist for VDARE. And so Steve Saylor insisted and... Uh, National Review says, well, we won't publish you. And in retrospect, uh, Steve Saylor thinks that he was wrong. So you have to choose your, your battles. In retrospect, Steve Saylor thinks he was wrong for insisting that his National Review byline contained the, the, the line that he's a weekly columnist for V-Dare. So it sounds like Nathan Koftos, you know, had his essay all ready to go for, for National Review or some similar publication, but they just insisted on various cuts, which he was willing to make until they insisted that he remove any criticism of John McWhorter. And I think uh, Nathan made the right choices. Nathan has a really tight Twitter game. So if you want to know how to play on social media, like look at Nathan Koffness's Twitter game. So here's an example. It says Republicans are underrepresented in academia because they're just not cut out to be scholars. That's why fields with the highest intellectual standards like anthropology and communications and 99.5% Democrat, while Republicans are relegated to engineering, math, and economics. So uh, generally speaking, the higher the, you know, the average IQ level, all right, the, the smaller distinction there is between Democrats and Republicans in the field. So when it comes to engineering, chemistry, economics, the, the professions, mathematics, physics, computers, right, uh, Republicans are represented pretty well. But when it comes to the lowest IQ academic disciplines, then not nearly as many Republicans. So Nathan's got a really tight Twitter game. He doesn't beg for mercy. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He just uh, makes his points. He doesn't slop over, right? He doesn't uh, get out of control. He's an excellent model for how to conduct yourself online. I finally said, no, sorry, I'm, I'm pulling the... So he's very careful in what he has to say. So he may not be as an exciting presenter as, say, uh, PPP and uh, Nick Fuentes and uh, Andy Worski, but that has the advantage of he doesn't say a whole bunch of stupid things online that could come back to haunt him and get in the way of his being useful. Oh, what, what, what did you say critical about John McWhorter? Just that he was a... So he uh, has, at one of the Heterodox Academy conferences, he expressed his off-stated opinion that 
we shouldn't discuss the possible genetic or the actual genetic causes of uh, race differences. He said this many times, uh, and he said it at the Heterodox Academy conference, uh, and all the other speakers just nodded in agreement. There was no discussion about that. Everyone just accepted, yeah, you shouldn't talk about this. That's too, that's too much. And uh, then I, I uh, pointed out that he, afterwards, he was given an award, the Free Inquiry Award by Heterodox Academy. And I suggested that that was, or I implied that there was some tension between what he had done and what Heterodox Academy was recognizing him for. Yeah. Yeah. In your piece, you talk about some other things that have been said at Heterodox Academy. For example, uh, Amy Wax, you said that, what was it? They said that she shouldn't, it's okay that she's not allowed to teach certain things to students. Right. Everyone just agreed that she, it's, it's fine. And this was some years ago before now she, there, there's been other controversies about uh, Amy Wax. And at the time, which she still has done nothing wrong, but uh, to be clear, uh, but at the time, all she did was uh, that, that got her in trouble originally was she said that uh, blacks are more likely to be in the bottom half of the yeah. class. Uh, and I, I guess that was the main reason why she wasn't allowed to teach required courses at Penn. And according to the Heterodox Academy speakers, that was, uh, that was fine. And, uh, you know, Heterodox Academy never was really, uh, interested in defending her or others like her. Yeah, you, you, you been, talked about another quote from, uh, a woman at a Heterodox Academy conference where she said, essentially, you know, that bias and incidents were not an example of free speech and that it's not okay. Free speech does not extend to questioning someone's existence, which is a, a kind of a way that... Yeah. So she, she's actually a diversity administrator yeah. Yeah, I did actually that they're inviting to the... the uh, so it's, it's such a big tent movement, includes people like that, but, you know, nobody like Amy Wax and nobody on the other side. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and so John Tomasi, he had a, a reply to my... Uh, my article, which I felt was unsatisfying in many ways, but when I, I guess, responding to my point that Heterodox Academy has become a club for liberals, he said, uh, what was the uh, statistic, um, that I think 14, okay, he says, uh, Heterodox Academy is nonpartisan, 14% of our members identify as right conservative. Um, okay, but they are not they're never invited. They're never given a platform by Heterodox Academy. They just signed up for the, the email list. Yeah. Uh, but the, the Heterodox Academy has not actually welcomed them as equal participants. And certainly not people who are you know, doing genuinely um, unpopular work in the Academy. Okay, so Nathan Kofnes has a program, right? He has a perspective. He has actions to take that can you know, push the world forward, the world of academia in particular. All right. How do we create a new culture at universities? So action one, promote knowledge of the cause of racial differences. Wokeism follows from an empirical claim, namely that innate potential is distributed equally among all groups, right? particularly among all racial groups. And I don't think it's that controversial, shouldn't be that difficult to say that uh, different groups have different gifts and whether those different gifts result 50% from genetic differences, 5% from genetic differences, 99% from environmental differences, right? That's, you know, interesting. But at this time, at this place, different groups have different gifts. And that's something that you usually can say in polite society that won't lead to the destruction of your life. I mean, do you really think that uh, Eritreans, Koreans, and Jews, on average, are born with exactly the same abilities, the same gifts? All right? So how do you explain persistent disparities in group outcomes if groups are identical? Well, 
the obvious culprit is white racism. But it's hard to find many examples of contemporary racism that can explain the massive disparities that we find in life outcomes among blacks, whites, and Asians living side by side in America. Like legal discrimination against historically persecuted minorities was effectively outlawed three generations ago. So white racists have become the most despised group in America. Trillions of dollars have been invested in correcting the injustices of the past. Right. Members of lower performing groups are now given massively preferential treatment across the board in lending, in academia. So the only way to argue that this is white racism is to argue that white racism now displays itself in new and mysterious forms that can't exactly be empirically quantified or pointed out. Right? It's a new form of conspiracy theory. So Jonathan Haidt says, oh, it's not that slavery's ended, it's just changed form. It's not that Jim Crow has ended, it's just uh, changed form. But there's no way to empirically you know, point out how this could be true. So in Jonathan Haidt's words, we have to change things about our society that leads to different outcomes. Right? And this gives rise to witch hunts in response to imagined racism, in response to conspiracy theories about white racism. And it leads to a culture of repression and intolerance to a culture of wokeism so there is one way to stop wokeism to refute the empirical claim that motivates it the equality thesis that everybody every group is just born with the same innate abilities and temperaments well innate abilities and temperaments do not seem to be evenly distributed among all populations that's why you find group differences over and over and over and over again not just in america but in england and france and europe and australia so Political, social, cultural policies that are based on this egalitarian thesis always fail. Right? If you understand group differences, right, you do not need to imagine to hallucinate you know, white racism as an explanation for different groups succeeding you know, differently and having different life outcomes. You know, wokeism is based on a taboo of recognizing differences in groups right so from early childhood onwards we are taught that taking any kind of hereditarian perspective about group differences is a serious heinous moral crime and all psychologically normal people have been affected by this just as prior to charles darwin there was a similar taboo questioning the biblical account of uh, creation so charles darwin when he shared his view that species are not immutable wrote that it felt like he was confessing a murder so in 2023 taboo violators face not just this kind of internal psychological resistance but a very real threat of punishment so you have to be wise with how you do it recognize your position in life recognize where you're vulnerable and recognize that the more prestigious your position in life the more vulnerable you are to this kind of cancellation so do you need to have like at least three phds in genetic psychometrics and neuroscience to be qualified to assess the evidence for group differences. Well, it's not really that complicated, right? If you have a basic understanding about statistics, neuroscience, and other relevant subjects, you can understand the evidence on a fairly deep level, but an extensive background in these areas is not required. I mean, IQ measures something real, measures something important, not just the ability to take an IQ test, right? IQ differences result in significant lifetime differences in length of life, quality of life, success in academia, 
earning potential, ability to stay out of prison, right? Ability to, you know, build a, a stable life, right? You get very different communities when you have a community with an average IQ of 110 versus a community with an average IQ of 105 versus a community with an average IQ of 97, 92, 82. I mean, intelligence testing is the crown jewel of psychology, right? Psychology is generally filled with non-replicable and outright fraudulent claims, but IQ studies replicate again and again and again. As Steven Pinker says, the replica replicability crisis in psychology does not apply to IQ, right? Huge replicable results, but people hate that message, right? Such a basic, basic tool for understanding the world. Now, is race just a biologically meaningless social construct? No, not really. It's a useful indicator of different types of communities, different types of life outcomes, different types of, of gifts. You know, ancestral populations are genetically distinguishable. Race is rooted in biological reality. And uh, Kofnitz writes, the subject of uh, group differences is just too inflammatory. Let's only talk about, you know, things that don't get people uh, upset. Well, it, that just doesn't work, right? Sometimes some people have to be willing to step up and say things that uh, push back against current orthodoxies. You know, not everyone should be doing that, shouldn't be doing it in your workplace, shouldn't be doing it in social situations that will just lead to ostracism. But there's a time and a place for standing up against the woke orthodoxy. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so uh, John Tomasi issued a, an apology. And in that apology, uh, he made various, <laughs> I wouldn't call them excuses necessarily, but he was saying, essentially, you know, we're not trying to leverage political power. What we're trying to do is create a movement that creates change from the inside. So I'm just going to push back on you a little bit and say, you know, if Heterodox Academy is using this gentle method of getting people on board with this message that dissent is okay and that heterodoxy is okay and making change from the inside rather than leveraging external political power. And, and we'll talk a little bit later about what leveraging external political power looks like because there are people who are trying to do that right now. Wouldn't that be difficult for you to measure or see? Isn't it difficult to figure out what the world would be, how the world would be different, how the academy would be different if heterodox academy never existed? Um, so uh, Tomasi also makes the, uh, the point. He says, we're a 501c3 nonprofit. So we're not allowed uh, to, uh, he said, we're not allowed to advocate for political uh, candidates, political parties, or legislation. Mm -hmm. um, so that was his, his main response to my challenge. Why are they they're not uh, you know, exploring? Because there's going to need to be some political organization in order to solve some of these problems, and Heterodox Academy shows no interest in that, um, especially with allying with Republicans. Uh, and this is a cop-out, I think, for a few reasons. Uh, first, it's not like they're not allowed to ever mention politics as a 501c3 organization, because uh, Heterodox Academy conferences include plenty of Republican Trump bashing. Mm. They, don't, they don't cut off the microphone and say, no, we're a 501c3 organization, can't do that. But they have Trump bashing, they don't have anything on the other side, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, I searched Heterodox Academy's website for DeSantis, yeah. and I got, I got a hit right, of them complaining about his laws. Uh, so, but okay, yeah, it's true. As a 501c3 organization, they can't, you know, officially endorse candidates. But still, one important point is that they've gone out of their way to alienate conservatives. And that was one of the original 
uh, complaints that John Haidt expressed about the Academy was that there are all these, you know, conservatives are being alienated, that you can make jokes about conservative uh, candidates. That was what he said in the beginning, and that that was... Be gay because I've never had a girlfriend. I think if anything, if anything, it makes me less gay. Never having a girlfriend, never having sex with a woman, really makes you more heterosexual. Because honestly, dating women is gay. Having sex with women is gay. And having sex with men is gay. And that, you know, it's really, it's all gay. <laughs> that was the Christmas episode, by the way. You know about Hitler's coming, man? No, I don't know about that. But what we have to, I just think you should not want to be Hitler's coming man. I didn't say I was. I don't. I don't really care that much about Hitler. I love him. He was like, you just do it as a way to like a troll. No, he seems like a cool guy. You know, it's like he, um, <laughs> he, you know, it's like he had a really cool outfit and stuff. And he was a really good architect. And, uh, and well, you're in love with the with the with the, with the, with the, 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 the look of it. And he didn't kill six million Jews. That's just like factually incorrect. Yeah, I was with the Ronald Reagan clip. They showed me your thing. Sorry, go ahead. Ronald Reagan said that too. Let me just say this in closing. I've done a lot of study. I think Hitler was a really bad guy. And I repudiate what Hitler did. I understand that the British intelligence set him up and used I, him. I, I like Hitler. I, I don't like Hitler. I know you're trying to be shocking with that. I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I the, the Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. And Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities. So tell us, you love, think we you think Hitler was a good guy in World War II? So <laughs> Kanye now just wants to be left alone. Right. Imagine all those people who hooked their their wagon to Kanye West. Now he just wants to be left alone. Well, there's a problem with you know saying provocative things like that over and over again on all sorts of different outlets. Uh, you make it more difficult for people to just leave you alone. But uh, Kanye now has just completely you know, run away from what he was doing. So the wise political movement, the wise cultural movement, the wise social movement, the wise religious movement, and the wise you know, movement for the individual from a you know, life of losing to a life of winning is to take a little time to consider like, how will my actions and my words right now at this particular platform, how are they going to affect my life down the road? Like, how would people who know absolutely nothing about me react to what I'm saying if it, if it gets clipped? And, you know, Kanye just failed, failed, failed. And uh, it's going to be really difficult for him to build himself back because he just had no sense of the consequences of his words and how that was going to affect his life going forward. I mean, this is a guy who's a father. He's got kids. If you have a sense of the well-being of your children, of your spouse, of your friends, your community, you just could not act as uh, Kanye acted. So what's the best thing to do when you're home alone without the family? Rifle through your son's books that may not have sat right with you. You don't want to do it in front of them. That's a lie. Lie, 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 lie. So my boy will never bring this book to me again and say, Dad, Dad, will you bring me this book? No, we're having a good old-fashioned book burning. Oh, what are they going to do? Are they going to go to the rocket and go to the moon? Whoa. Book burning. I've ever seen Ralph playing Civilization Six on normal and lost in five, in five turns. turns. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! You're everybody fine knew, with your guy. Being everybody a... knew Milo was a piece of shit, right? I told them he has such a long history of burning every single motherfucker who comes into his path. He's a known homosexual, a known Jew. He's been a pedophile apologist. You brought him in. You embraced him with open arms. You vouched for him. 
Ali, the same thing. And let's not pretend this is the first time in America First this has happened. What about Trey Politics? Creepy pedophile. Absolute creepy pedophile. Nick defended him until the proof came out. Hey, Latino Zoomer. Nick swept it up. Let's not forget Latino Zoomer. And then tried saying with Ethel Shaggy's fucking tweet that it was Medicare's fan. Oh, when no. that it was, was a total gay op and a fucking lie. Totally yeah. photoshopped Medicare hat upon this fucking kid's head. He was a pedophile and Nick knew and he swept it. He said he was a good guy and he didn't believe it. It's the pattern continues and continues and continues. What about fucking Brosif, who is sitting there in the America First fucking telegram groups telling everybody, I want to have sex with teenagers, saying that teenagers are sexy, this, that, and the other. It's not just Ali Alexander. The fucking failures in judgment are biblical and it's comprehensive and it continues over and over and over again. And let's not forget the whole core root cause of all this bullshit is Nick saying the age of consent is a social construct. The age of consent that we put in place to protect children from having their innocence stolen, which should be the first principle of any conservative movement. If we can't conserve our children's innocence, what can we conserve? That is the truth. If you can't even conserve children's innocence, but he'll tell us that age of consent, which is meant to protect your children, my children, the innocent of society, the least among us, the people who are helpless. He'll tell us that's by feminists to artificially increase their sexual market value. That's the sort of scumbag shit this fucking idiot says. If Nick's not a pedophile himself, he certainly shields pedophiles. He certainly talks a lot of pedophile or map rhetoric. He has no problem with Ali Alexander and what he did. He just has a problem that Ali got caught and it looks bad for him. That's the fucking truth. Those are the facts. Sorry to... Okay, so what does map refer to? That refers to uh, minor attracted persons. And uh, age of consent is a social construct. That doesn't mean that it's not also something that's valuable and, and moral and useful. Say. Sorry to say. Wow. Anyway, folks, that's just yeah. like the opening that's fucking the rant here. That's that's the bottom fucking line on all of this shit. That's the bottom line on all of this shit. Case closed. Ollie Alexander is a fucking proven pedophile. He should be fucking, he should be killed. That's the truth. In Minecraft. He should honestly be shot into the fucking center of the sun where he will burn and then burn in all hell for all eternity. That's the truth. And anybody who defends him still, anybody who's sweeping for him, anybody who's in favor of him maintaining his position deserves the same fate. Jesus told us that those who offend the little ones, it would be better for them if a millstone was put around their neck and they were cast into the sea. But instead, Nick Fuentes has not taken away Ali's cozy channel. He's disavowed his actions, but not the man. And he's continued to allow him to be on Yay24. He's going to continue to allow him to use his clout and use his name to groom young men. It's pathetic. It's fucking shameful. It is fucking shameful. All right. It's fucking crazy. Now, now listen, guys, that's pretty serious shit. It's pretty heavy shit. To start the show, we're going to go into the Ali files. We're going to go into it all. We're going to break down Nick's response. Wurzel Root versus uh, Andrew Wilson yesterday. Uh, we're going to go into all the AF members, Beardson, Dalton, all their fuck-ups over the last two weeks. We're going to start off with something a bit lighter here, though. Yes. Uh, Anthony Kumya of Opie and Anthony fame has uh, the Compound Media now, runs his show. He's on Chris Ayer's show this stuff uh well Anthony Cumia, as we all know a few like maybe six months ago eight months ago he was actually uh he was put fucking you know on on cozy because he's like you know free speech guy and all that type of stuff and he likes the idea of cozy yeah well we're gonna learn that cozy from one of their actual okay does does uh physiognomy reflect something real in in my experience physiognomy reflects something real all right, you can get a pretty good read on people just by looking at them. You can get a really good read on people just by listening to their voice. All right, just uh, listen, listen to their voice. You get a sense of how much they're straining, how much they are prevaricating, how much they are at ease with themselves and, and with the, the world around them. Right, someone can be going through tremendous pain. Someone can be suffering from tremendous failure. 
someone can be enduring tremendous embarrassment but you can hear the the pain and the failure and the embarrassment in their voice along with an acceptance of reality with other people you can listen to the voice and you can hear the strain there where they are denying reality where they are trying too hard where they are projecting something false so you can hear authenticity in a voice you can hear recovery in a voice you can hear that someone's rooted in reality even when they're suffering even when they're failing even when they're embarrassed right there will still be a quality of authenticity in someone's voice so you combine the cues that you get from voice along with visual cues along with someone's physiognomy right you can get a pretty good read on people right there are all sorts of you know cues there's all sorts of information that's just flowing towards us if you're at ease with yourself and at ease with reality you can accept those cues and you can make some pretty useful judgments and uh, a useful life you know absolutely requires constantly making judgments right so it may start with just uh, keeping some people out of your life all right it may mean using discretion with you know the type of podcasts or shows that you take in or the type of entertainment you imbibe let's uh, give kino cathedral a little more of a chance Please, here. big league me ppp i ain't even on the first show didn't you know i'm an innovator and in being a fucking money to them uh so i'm very excited for and, that and shit then, so to the gum road down below cut the following him. this is he lives in like a one bedroom apartment in new york apparently drake has dropped a new track which shits on kanye i haven't heard that whoa whoa buddy uh but west's marriage coincided with a marked dip in the rapper's interest in his campaign according to one employee i wonder why i wonder why <laughs> i wonder why kanye getting married to a smoking hot jewess would uh you know cripple his interest uh in killing all the jews i wonder why yadoff fucking back down oh it's no. a mystery we'll never it's know we'll never know the next one now. all right let's go to the next slide uh, Adam Camacho, who told the Daily Beast that West hired him as a documentary producer in November 2022, said the informal campaign has been a communications nightmare. Now, I looked into this guy, Adam Camacho. His IMDb, his, one of his credits is the Bertaria documentary that Owen Benjamin made. So okay. this guy was a part of Owen coming on the campaign, I guess. Uh, and he's like the documentary filmmaker that was doing this shit. So he's a big inside source. Okay. And he tried to contact West in February to see if his contract working for Kanye would be extended. Uh, and he couldn't get a hold of him. So nobody could get a hold of Kanye in January, February, ever since his marriage. It, it just further solidifies that Nick was lying about that. But Camacho did eventually get a hold of West, who Camacho oh. claims wired money to extend his agreement. But Camacho has had little to do since West's campaign seems to be on hiatus. Oh. It's on ice permanently. Let's get real. <laughs> Um, so Camacho said that Wes told him he was too focused on other ventures, like the sushi-only Donda Academy. I don't know Wait, what that means. The sushi-only Donda Academy? I guess the only food Wait. served at Donda Academy is sushi. I don't know what that <laughs> fucking means. But he goes, right now, I'm living my life. I'm oh. concentrating on the school, the Donda Academy, my wife and kids, and that's it. I just want to be left alone. There it is. So, there it is. Like, it's fucking felted. It's absolutely felted. He wants to be left alone. He's not focusing on the political stuff right now. His interests are focused on his children. So you often hear that after someone's done something horrible uh, or something embarrassing or something stupid. I just want to be left alone. Okay, the universe doesn't have to conform to your wishes, right? If you behave in, in ways that invite scrutiny and attention, you can't just rely on being rescued with the sentiment, I just want to be left alone. If you say a bunch of stupid things... Right, you can't just rely that other people are going to accommodate you and your desire to just be left alone. Uh, Andrew Wiggins, right, professional basketball player, he 
dropped out of the Golden State Warriors. He didn't play for 25 games, right? I think the, the final 25 games of the Golden State Warriors season. And there's no reporting on what exactly happened. But, you know, he took a leave for personal reasons. Right. If you're a professional basketball player and you abandon your team in the middle of the season, you skip 25 games for quote-unquote personal reasons. All right. By choosing to be in the spotlight and to be paid for being a professional basketball player, you don't get an exemption from investigation. So, so far, Andrew Wiggins, key player for the Golden State Warriors, it hasn't been revealed exactly why he took 25 games off for personal reasons. But this public figure fallback, oh, I just want to be left alone. The universe doesn't have to accommodate your wishes. If you choose positions where you become a public figure, right, it's not going to be compelling to argue that you just want to be left alone. Right? If you choose to become a professional basketball player, a professional politician, a professional pundit, uh, if you work hard to become a celebrity, to become famous, right, and then something goes wrong and you just want to be left alone, well, the universe isn't going to necessarily just bend to you. Right? There's, there's, going, to be, there's going to be some things in reality that you're not going to enjoy. Because, you know, what we say and do has consequences, right? If you act in a way that provokes people, right, you can't just expect them to uh, just leave you alone. Children, family, and creative endeavors. Anyone that is representing Ye in any political capacity is a charlatan. What? Is a charlatan. <laughs> there is no political shop. Let me repeat. Anyone that is representing Ye in any political capacity is a charlatan. There is no political shop. So when Nick says the campaign is still going, <laughs> when Ali says it's still going, it is not going. It is dead. It was dead on arrival. It is dead now. It will be dead forever. Yay24 was a fraudulent scam and those continuing to report. Wow. Uh, I guess uh, Elliot Blatt is on and I didn't even hear that. So let me figure out the settings. Okay. Oh, that's why they're wrong. Okay, let's see if... Uh, let me... Nope, 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 nope. I still don't have it. Let me... Uh, um, okay, uh, Elliot, say something. Okay, uh, I can hear you, but the audience can't. So why am I... Doggone it, doggone it. Um... Bloody hell. Um, okay, uh, hang loose there. I'm just going to play, play something in the background while we get this figured out. Port to represent it are charlatans. Thank you. Thank you. So that's just a massive fucking feltoning for the federal honeypot operation. America first, cozy.fed, and Nicholas J. Fuentes. Attempts to reach West through his attorneys were unsuccessful. To the extent that it ever existed, West's campaign earned most of its headlines for the far-right influencers West brought into his orbit. That group included Alexander, homosexual pedophile, Yiannopoulos, homosexual pedophile, and Fuentes, confirmed homosexual, non-confirmed pedophile, <laughs> as well as anti-Muslim activist and failed Republican congressional candidate Laura Loomer. Blessings. Okay, Elliot Black, we can hear you. I can hear you. The world can hear you. And soon, those people who did 9-11, they'll be able to hear you too. Yeah. What's going on, bro? You're live. Elliot? Elliot? <laughs> 
there a reason you called in today? Elliot, can you hear me? Um, hang on. Uh, Elliot, can you hear me? Luke, you're saying something? Yes, I'm saying something, but you oh. can. Can you hear me? Okay, yes, I can. But you know what? I'm having technical problems because my... Hello? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Okay, I have to keep my hand on the uh, mic cord. All right. What's going on, bro? All right. Uh, well, um, uh, I, I I heard you. I missed the show on Friday. I, I heard it after it broadcast, and you talked about Chuck Johnson and so forth. Yeah, I devoted I devoted hours upon hours reading every single Substack post that he's written in 2023. I spent about ten hours. Okay. Going through did you happen stuff. to listen to that whole podcast, or did you just listen to bits of it? I listened to the whole podcast on the raw truth about Silicon Valley, except for, I think, like the final 12 minutes. I didn't I didn't okay. hear the final 12 minutes. OK, well, that's fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, so he says all of these things and I'm, uh, you know, I, I just don't know. Like you said, he just doesn't source anything. He just makes these big, bold claims and they have this allure about them because it's sort of it's sort of they come out of this sort of really dark conspiratorial view of the world yeah which for all i know could be true but you know it's likely not to be true and but the whole thing is like very seductive it um you kind of want to believe it you know yeah and um, i think he's on to some things I, I don't think he's he's a fool he's highly intelligent and i really do think he knows you know the people that he claims to to know and there's there's some gold there, but there's just so much dross as well that you really have to work to try to sort out the gold from the dross. Right, right. Um, okay, I was hoping uh, I'm going to do some more digging on this, but uh, you know, then he, you you say he's like he's Jewish. I uh, thought I, I thought that he he had a significant Jewish genetic component, but uh, I I don't know so. He's got a real bug up that. his ass about Israel, though. I mean, he's really yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. He really doesn't like Likud and Israel. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, he's like a Biden fan, which you know rubs me the wrong way. And uh, I don't know, it's just a very peculiar picture he paints all around. But it, it's sort of like Richard Spencer is the sort he kind of draws you in with all of his sort of bombast and just bold assertions. There's something about the bold assertion that makes for. Uh, compelling content yeah yeah the, the money is in making bold assertions the money's yeah. not in being right yeah okay well i was just going to chat about that but then uh, i had this really long day on friday so i uh, i had to i had to rent a truck a giant truck so i spent the day on friday driving a giant truck and moving some books from one place to another and have you ever done that? Have you ever driven a large truck? Mm, not for many years and very little. Oh, it's terrifying, dude. It is terrifying. So it just gave me a new appreciation for the people that drive trucks. Because you can't see behind you, Luke. you got to rely on those mirrors, you know? Yeah. And, like, you're just not – I'm used to looking up to look at the rear mirror, not to the side, and then trying to, you know – 
uh, figure out the condensed view that the mirror gives you and God, is it stressful? And you have so much weight, you know, you just gives you appreciation for what it takes to build a truck that's safe to drive. Um, so anyway, uh, just hey, wait. Listen. Let's get back to the Chuck Johnson yeah. uh, space on the, the truth, the raw truth about Silicon Valley startups. Now, yeah. there wasn't much conspiracizing in that space because his guests would not back up most of Chuck Johnson's wild assertions. But there did seem to be a lot of good content on there. Does that did the things that were discussed on that space ring true with what you know, what you've seen? Um. I have never, I've seen my own brand of weirdness, but it was nothing, it was it's just sort of a different character altogether than what he was describing. So, you know, my particular company is started by Taiwanese, you know, um, politically connected Taiwanese family who made good in America. And um, so I sort of, you know, I, I, I work with Chinese culture, you know, it's like my world is, is intertwined with Chinese slash Taiwanese culture. And um, so I get into weird cultural spots that I don't quite understand, if that makes any sense. But I wouldn't say it's nefarious the way that Chuck, it, I, my friction is just this cultural friction. Um, and it's not has nothing to do with what, what Chuck's talking about, right, where the Chinese government is funding certain startups to, um, you know, to, to undermine America, which, which seems to be the case he's making. Yeah. And um, he, he, he sort of, he, he seems to be making this, this correlation causation problem over and over again, right? Two things happen and therefore they're connected and they're causal. You know, two things happen in proximity, and then therefore there's a direct causal relationship between the two. Yeah, and he just he does that over and over. For such a smart guy, he has to stop doing that if people are going to take him seriously. Yeah, but his guest, you know, occupied most of that space, and his guest was quite interesting. His guest had, you know, a large background. It appears with Silicon Valley startups. Yes, and that his his testimony. Uh, it was really interesting. And because I've, you know, I've worked for successful startups and yeah, the things he's talking about and the, the burning of money and the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the cocaine and the, and, the, and the egotism that surrounds that culture all ring true to me. Now, and they may not make mm-hmm. bad decisions. That's the thing is, it's like the, the people in the exact there's the executive class and then there's the techies underneath them and the executives don't really understand technology the way you expect them to so that's the big um in every startup i've known and been involved with that's failed it's always been that problem that uh the executives get lost they just want to be in powerful meetings and talk about powerful things and talk about their powerful connections um but they really don't understand the technology itself that they're uh, that, that they're representing through, in their company, and they make really dumb decisions. And it's it happens so often. So anyway, have you been subjected to any honeypot schemes from the Chinese Communist Party? Not that I'm aware of. But I do have one funny story from like the Chinese world. Okay. Um, 
so like the meetings so for the number of years we would have our meetings at the home of the family that started the company so in their big mansion in silicon valley and i you know to get there i had to drive my car and then i'd ring the buzzer at the gate and this iron gate would open and then i'd drive through then the gate would close behind me you know this is all very heady stuff you know <laughs> and so then i would get to the house i'd park in the nice driveway then i'd get to the house and then two attendants would open the door right and then they would take out they would give me a pair of slippers and they would take my shoes and give me a cup of tea there was this whole protocol you know and I'm just a, you know, a, a live stream doofus, you know, I'm not part of this world whatsoever, but I'm sort of, because I have tech skills, I get introduced and I, this, this is, I, I get thrust into this world. So it's a sort of a, a being there type of uh, scenario that happens. So, um, but anyway, so this would go on, like we'd, we'd meet once a week, you know, month after month would go on. And then, um, then, then all of a sudden the two attendants were gone the two mysterious servants that would greet me, they were gone. They'd been fired. And they were fired because they were accused of the woman of the house fired them because they were, she suspected them of cheating on her. They, they expect the, hu the husband of cheating, uh, the, the, the wife. No, I'm sorry. Yes. They expected her husband of cheating on the wife. And so it was this big steamy drama and then they were just gone. They were just removed from the scene. No sort of process, no sort of, they were just summarily, they lived at the place too. And they just had to pick up the shit and they were gone. And it was a total, it was just, a, it was just a, um, a fever dream of this woman that this, this affair was going on and it was not justified. But they live in the world where they don't have to sort of obey the sort of rules and regulations that govern employment, because I'm pretty sure they were here illegally, uh, the servants. And um, it was just an interesting dimension. So, the, so a lot of these ethnic enclaves have no regard for the traditional customs and laws of employment law. I'm uh, babbling. My, I'm sorry. That's okay. My father would often be called in to counsel husbands and wives where the wife was just absolutely sure that the husband was cheating on her. And I'm going to guess in many of these occasions, the wife is wrong about this particular time and instance and, you know, possible partner for the husband. But, you know, he's probably she she just has this understanding that he's probably cheated on her in the past. But I know. You know but the, go ahead. Well, the man in question here is like deep into his 70s, possibly 80 at the time, you know, approaching 80. I mean, you know, he, 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 the charge is ludicrous. I mean, he can barely walk around. He's not in the, he's not in the cheating uh, demographic anymore, you know? Had it been 40 years ago, yes, a man in his position probably would have been. Oh, but it seems like she had remembered all of the fear and jealousy she felt around infidelity way back then and it just sort of blossomed into the present even though it was completely ludicrous oh another thing that may be going on here is that uh, when one partner becomes frail the the other partner uh starts bullying because they can and so as the husband gets older and becomes more frail you know the, the wife gets out from under his thumb and starts yeah you know, bullying and abusing, because when people can, people bully and abuse. 
Yes. Not, not everyone, but a large, large number. People who look perfectly nice. And, and it can be very complicated. You know, I'd see this firsthand that uh, on the one hand, the partner can be supportive and nurturing as well as bullying and abusive. And it's often hard to tell whether the, the partner is more abusive or more nurturing. Well, that, that reminds me of a story uh, from when I was back in Boston. So I knew a guy that was, uh, you know, he was a construction guy. And he's always doing work on people's houses. And he worked for this real old money family on Cape Cod. And it was this old couple. And the man and the woman. And the woman would have periodically go into these freakout sessions and just start kicking the man, the husband, in the shins. Like yeah. over and over and over. Like bang, 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 right? And this was just this sort of abuse would go on for year after year. And the guy's shins, I didn't see this personally, it was described to me, was just like this red mass of scars and cuts and, and bumps and contusions. <laughs> because she, she had been kicking him like this for years and years and years, and he just bore the scars of this. So, yes, it's a, I didn't know that this sort of this inversion of power dynamic you're talking about is, was widespread. That's very interesting. Now, uh, Bob Lee, we found out more about the murder of Bob Lee. The man accused of uh, murdering Bob Lee was apparently concerned that Bob Lee had an inappropriate relationship with the man's beautiful, beautiful but married sister. So did yes, you, did you so I heard that dimension yeah. and it, it strikes me. I think he was Iranian in origin. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, that definitely throws a new... Um, dimension to the to the question and it's all sounds very probable because uh, given the neighborhood where this took place this was not this was one of the few downtown neighborhoods that were relatively intact and haven't been um you know covered over with a pause as it were so the iranian community is interesting in that they tend to be very expressive of their emotions so uh, Beverly Hills is something like 50% Iranian and the the vast, vast majority of domestic calls where the police are called out is to an Iranian home because they tend to be much more uh, expressive of their feelings. They they say things that uh, you know, regular Americans wouldn't say. So I remember once this this Iranian immigrant uh, father, you know, burst out about his son. My son's a drug dealer. My son's a drug dealer because he, he discovered uh, some some money that his son had and the son wouldn't immediately account for how he got the money and so the father just starts screaming so the whole block can hear my son's a drug dealer <laughs> that's not how I, like a normal american parent would handle that no now is it true that the iranians in la are actually you know persian jews iranian jews yeah they're overwhelmingly persian jews yeah okay um uh, so the other thing is, um, uh, so Whole Foods, there was a, there's a new, so the, the crime problem in the Bay Area is, is that, you know, it's slowly ratcheting up. And um, right, so today was in the news that there was a, an armed robbery inside the garage of a Whole Foods, right, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the temple of, of uh, you know, woke ideology you know your npr crowd is basically shopping at, at um, whole foods and <clears throat> so it's all over next door about this and it's just very weird and fun to watch people grapple 
for the fact that, uh, you know, defunding the police is going to, has come back to bite them. But the whole food, there was like whole foods is like a very critical moat. It's the Rubicon. Once things happen at whole foods, uh, thing, things are serious. Yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> another area where Chuck Johnson, I think, is onto something, and that's the whole influencer economy. So uh, Ben Shapiro and the Daily Wire is consistently the, the number one uh, site for Facebook. And so some sort of arrangement because there's virtually no original content on, on Daily Wire. It's just people's opinions and, you know, inflammatorily packaged opinions about things. Uh, but it gets, you know, more views, more clicks on, on Facebook than New York Times, which has something like 1,200 original reporters. So there is some sort of arrangement between the Daily Wire and Facebook wherein Ben Shapiro tucks in line behind Mark Zuckerberg, and in exchange, Mark Zuckerberg gives Ben Shapiro preferential treatment. And also, when you hear Stephen Crowder was offered $50 million for a four-year deal with the Daily Wire, that is not primarily a business deal. All right. No, There's something no. else going on. And I, that's now Chuck Johnson say, oh, it's the Chinese and the Israelis uh, buying influence. And I'm not sure about the particulars of Chuck Johnson's critique, but I think Chuck Johnson is absolutely right that there's something going on about the right wing influencer economy, you know, beneath the headlines. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what do you think it is? Is, is it, um, you know, to sort of keep the uh, political discourse within you know, acceptable limits. Is, is this the idea here? Well, there's something more going on. And I, I don't know what it is. Uh, but uh, I mean, I think there was there was an excellent movement on the right to develop alternative forms of, of social media, including rumble, which we're broadcasting live across right now. So mm -hmm. tens of millions of dollars have been poured into Rumble, into Parler, into True Social. So all sorts of alternative platforms have developed where we can speak more freely than on YouTube and Facebook. And I think it's it's right and good that the the political right in America has funded these. So I think that's some of what's going on. So Rumble and Daily Wire are shoveling millions of dollars to particular creators and uh, you know, I think that's that's a good thing. It's not primarily, I don't think, an economic decision. It's a decision to try to influence the the public conversation. Right. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. Um, OK. Um, yeah, I didn't have much more to say. I just felt like. <laughs> well, <laughs> just a quick question from the chat. Yeah. Are you a Likud BB asset being used to bring America to its knees? How did they know? How did they know? <laughs> I thought I'd concealed it so well. Uh, yeah, that's funny. The, the uh, paranoia that runs through these some of these communities. Fed, fed, fed. <laughs> so let's imagine. Let's let's take that scenario seriously. So I would what get paid off, right? And then I would. We want you to call in. To this particular podcast once a yes. week <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not it's not got a huge inner it's not having a huge audience but it's so very influential, influential. <laughs> you know it's the olympus and uh <laughs> no the answer is no i am not and i'm embarrassed to know as little about israeli politics um as i do 
um, like a lot of leftists have a real bug up their ass about Israel. You know, um, do you, do you notice this? There is a yes. certain lot of anti, well, anti-Jewish sentiment on the left as much as there is on the right. Yeah. Um, and they have ways of talking about it. But when, when the scab comes off, you know, I mean, you know, it's particularly around the Palestinians, right? They, they lose their mind around the Palestinian issue. And um, they'll, they'll send me a link to something that happened vis-a-vis Israel and the Palestinians. And basically, they're trying to extract a confession from me or an apology from me, you know? Yeah. And they, A, they have no idea that, you know, I am sympathetic to the Israelis. I think, you know, I am pro-Israel, you know, in this, in this conversation. I, I think I'm aligned with, with you completely. I mean, I share your view on Israeli-Palestinian question. Um, but they, these leftists learn this stuff in college to the T. It's, 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 um, uh, it's terrible. Well, and it all makes sense. And I, ever, I, I, you know, I was indoctrinated into the by leftists when I was first went to college. You know, I got leafleted. I, I, the first thing they do, here's why it works. Here's why a leftist indoctrination works. Because they get you right when you're coming into college and when you're curious, you're super curious about the world. And it's your first chance to start thinking independently from your parents, you know, and all of the adults that have been forming you. Suddenly you've got the wheel and you get to uh, think for yourself. And then someone comes up with a leaflet showing you all of these ostensible atrocities committed by, you know, in those days it was, um, you know, Central American banana republics, you know, El Salvador and Nicaragua, where there was these leftist insurgency movements and you were, they were just trying to get you to be a partisan in this, these fights about A, which you'd never heard about before, and B, then they tell you that it's your government, it's the U.S. government that's, um, that's doing all of this and you know it's your responsibility to address the problem and and it gives you this real high gives you a high uh to think that you can suddenly um affect the world in a way um i don't know is that your so anyway so but it's so but you also have your grievances towards your parents towards all the adults that sort of had been a constraining uh uh issue a, a constraining force on you and so in it's in its own way it becomes a way of getting back at them yeah right? and yeah and, and how much do you get paid per look forward stream appearance when you stop by the israeli embassy well i don't get paid directly in cash what they do is they fund my startup so they launder the money uh, through. Yeah. so so my paycheck is is sort of it obscures any uh uh, paper trail, so it's pretty ingenious, but we know how smart how smart those Jews are. Okay, um, Bernard has an insight. He says, "Only fans is the tragedy of the commons for men. Tinder is the tragedy of the commons for women." So I'm trying to understand that the tragedy of the commons is that when there's no private property, people abuse that which is held in common. So you you have more experience with only fans than I do. Uh, I don't I'm sorry. Huh, okay. I haven't, I don't, you know, I don't I partake in this. I'm really, I'm, you know, I'm on a, uh, a fast, a, um, 
dopamine. Only fans fast. Yeah, you're not uh, you're not subsidizing any only fans right now. No, no. Thanks. Okay, bro. All right. Blessings. All right, I gotta go. I got work to do. It's tax time. Okay. You know. All right, bye. Blessings, blessings Bless. to you. All right, let's uh, have a look at the chat. Bernard says a quote here from Milan Kundera, The Unbearable Lightness of Being is the novel. But he said to himself, whether they knew or didn't know is not the main issue. The main issue is whether a man is innocent because he didn't know. Is a fool on the throne relieved of all responsibility merely because he is a fool? Oedipus did not know he was sleeping with his own mother, yet when he realized what had happened, he did not feel innocent. Unable to stand the sight of the misfortunes he had wrought by not knowing, he put out his eyes and wandered blind away from Thebes. So you're not relieved of all responsibility merely by being a fool. Certainly in other people's eyes. But if you truly were just 100% a fool, you can relieve yourself of responsibility. If there wasn't you know, obvious reasons why you should have known something, yeah, you can be... I think you can go easy on yourself, right? If you did the best you could with the tools and the knowledge that you had at your disposal, then I don't think you need to beat yourself down or beat yourself off. Who's an alleged rapist, according to Milo Yiannopoulos, <laughs> who sucks people off while they're asleep, according to Milo Yiannopoulos. Okay. So the whole fucking thing is in the shitter. All these motherfuckers are at each other's throats. The whole thing is a time bomb that's now exploded and they're all in the shit. Now, after publication, Loomer disputed that she was ever in West Orbit, though she confirmed that he had offered her a job. I never worked for the A campaign, and I never attempted to work for the A campaign. What a lie. She was so desperate. Remember, she was She begging. called in. Yeah. Remember when they were on Alex Jones on yes. speakerphone? Yes. Yeah. yeah. She was desperate to become a part of that. Loomer says, as a free speech absolutist, I don't believe anyone should be banned oh, in platform for their speech. Oh, give me a fucking What break. a brave stance you took, Laura. Your torch lights the way. Okay, so what? The free speech of <clears throat> molesting children? Woo, buddy. Uh, anyway, she says, Ye approached me and asked me to work on his campaign, and I politely declined. Bullshit! Oh, yeah, because she phoned into Ralph. Bullshit. And she's like, I was always on. No, uh, I was on. She was never offered a job for shit. She says she endorsed Trump and she's supporting Trump in his 2024 re-election efforts. So remember, this whole week, Laura Loomer was trying to get a job with Trump, but I think Milo fucked it all up and she got fired instantly or not even hired. I'm oh, really? Okay, that's what happened. Holy um, shit, this is fucking joke. These members Everyone. of West's new entourage joined him in shambolic interviews. I love that <laughs> word. Shambolic. It was a fucking shambles, an utter mess, with right-wing personalities like Alec Jones and Tim Poole, the latter of which ended with West and Yiannopoulos storming out. They couldn't even handle Dim Fool. We told Imagine. you motherfuckers, if they couldn't even handle Dim Fool, how were they going to swim with the sharks? How were they going to overturn Trump, DeSantis, Joe Biden? And, 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 and by the way, it was the first question. It was like the first, like, uh, like, you know pressing question yeah it wasn't anything it wasn't as even crazy the, it wasn't even i forget even what it was but it was just some like basic ass question they fucking spurred like, so him do, do you hate the jews and he's like what I don't, I, what you mean anyway of course uh, I do. like you know <laughs> uh, um so in december Yiannopoulos was fired uh from west campaign seemingly <laughs> replaced by ali alexander we swap out one gay pedo for another gay pedo this one's an indian uh, well, we swapped the Jew for an Indian. I think it's a downgrade, to be honest. With West campaign oh, basically dormant, Alexander has had little to do on the rapper's behalf. According to Milo and other people, like, Alexander wasn't even a part of the campaign. What Milo alleges is that Ali was fired on day four. Yeah. Like, day four of the campaign, Ali was fired. So, I don't fucking know. But is he... The truth is going to come out, and the truth will set us all free. Yeah, I know. One like, of these days, it's, it's coming. all coming. It's coming. It's coming. It's all coming. To... Look, if you take marginalized positions, 
the primary people you will get to hang out with will be other marginalized people. When you're hanging out with marginalized people, you have to use 10 times as much discretion and good judgment as opposed to when you're dealing with upstanding people. So from my own perspective, all right, I primarily hang out with Orthodox Jews and upstanding people. And on the side, I may have conversations with people on the margins, but I've never been hanging out in my social life with people on the margins. So when I was writing on the pornography industry, the pornography industry was not my social life, right? It wasn't socializing with the industry, except to the extent that I had, you know, a job to do. But my, my friends weren't pornographers. When I left the industry, I left everyone in that industry behind. When I talk about, you know, marginalized positions and I talk to marginalized people, they don't constitute, you know, the, the key people in my life. This is, this show is something that I do for, for a bit of fun. I'm not primarily hanging out with, you know, marginalized losers. So let's see what's going on here in the chat. What's my take on Gabe Hoffman? I don't know anything about him. Talks about Karl Rove discovered Ali Alexander. Okay, let's play a little more. To the light. Yeah. So each side has accused the other of plundering West's campaign for money. I'm sure they all have. I'm sure they've just, every last one of them sucked every last dime out of Kanye they could, the grifting scum. On his way out of the campaign, Yiannopoulos demanded $116,000 from West, ultimately receiving about $50,000, according to campaign finance reports. Fuentes has accused Yiannopoulos of running up hotel bills worth tens of thousands of dollars on Fuentes' credit card during the campaign, a claim that Yiannopoulos acknowledges, though he insists he tried to reimburse Fuentes. We have receipts. Mike has receipts that show that he did in fact reimburse Fuentes uh you know and you can't trust any of these fuckers uh, until they provide receipts let's face facts uh Milo was trying to get over a hundred thousand dollars in payment for 10 days work Loomer told the Daily Beast but I thought Laura didn't work on the campaign I thought Laura turned down the job yeah, and did nothing about fuck? it but she knows that Milo tried to get the hundred thousand dollars bullshit there's some sort of lie there you know it's like i don't need to see shit. shit to smell shit yeah. laura uh you know he's back to he trashes everybody that doesn't want to work with him well you all knew that before they brought him on board that that's how milo is you literally they, said yeah. you know you're gonna be backstabbed in yeah. like five seconds you were like what the fuck it was beyond retarded what they fucking did with milo and all these fuckers uh okay let's go to the next slide <clears throat> Last week, text messages between Yiannopoulos and Fuentes leaked onto Telegram and Twitter, and we're going to go all over all of it in the next segment. We're going to catch up on the last two weeks of the Ali files, Milo a versus lot. Fuentes versus Ali, all this shit. The messages flattered Yiannopoulos' narrative that he played a mentor role to the younger white nationalist leader. <laughs> These messages are so funny. Whoa, buddy. It's going to be jokes Just as wait. we read them. Yiannopoulos embraced the leak, which included a potentially embarrassing exchange where Yiannopoulos advised Fuentes on how to make up for his short stature. Can you imagine being told but by Milo Yiannopoulos that you're a worthless manlet scum <laughs> and that you need to figure out how to make up for your height because you're too short? Whoa, buddy. Anyway, Alexander and Fuentes did not return requests for comment, so that is... The end of EA 2024, the fucking nail is in the coffin. Kanye loves Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Okay, here's a good uh, clip from this show. Friend, by Luke Ross. I could not save from himself. And he's got a bunch of Latin here that he, he writes. Yep. All right, here we go. It's Ollie Alexander here. Let's Fine is a thief. He bears false witness against Ye. And now he's defrauding the public. He's defrauding investors. Those and he's teeth. defrauding customers. It's time for him to go down and stop this deal. Can you imagine being Carl Rove and that mouth is sucking your cock? Okay, well, no. Like, holy, <laughs> like, what man. The fuck? What imagine a disaster. Holy fuck, man. 
Uh, so this was him doing a weird, this was him trying to rebut what Milo's saying. He goes, sending death threats already? And we've barely begun, Mr. Akbar. The yawn emojis from Nick and Ali fans are designed to accelerate the drop, to see what I really have. But only a fool lets himself be harried by children. The way to really get under someone's skin, as I clearly have, is to turn the heat up slowly, inexorably, unbearably, so that by the time, whether they want to or not, everyone is watching just in time for your big reveal. Oh, unrelated note, I'm on TimCast on April 21st. Six days! Six days, ladies and gentlemen. a lot of work ahead of so, us, Ashton. I mean, I'm excited because it's going to be the same day as next week's Kino Casino, buddy. It's, it's like, going to be, we're going to basically probably have to watch the whole TimCast next Friday. Poetry, it rhymes. It literally rhymes, folks. All right. Let's go to the next one here. Uh, okay. Dur this is, uh, okay. All right. During the Groiper Wars, Nick never seemed particularly concerned or bothered about homosexual and other sexual predators and groomers. I remember it was Jaden, not Nick, who would lead the charge on Twitter against the groomers at TPUSA, for example. Jaden was always great at calling out the creepy TPUSA ambassadors and other affiliates there like Ram Rants and that creepy old Filipino guy who used to dress like a woman and attend TPUSA youth events and pose for photos while being held by young male conference attendees in addition to calling out Rob Smith and Lady Maga. Nick seemed more personally invested in criticizing the TPUSA women. So this is from just a, a random rank-and-file groiper. Milo goes, true, there's an entire history of soft peddling or running cover for the half dozen gay predators who insinuated themselves into AF. That we know about so far. Uh, of Nick absurdly demanding real proof when the matter is beyond doubt. Nick has defended or ignored allegations about or only very weakly spoken out against Latino Zoomer, Trey, Jesse Lee Peterson, Ali. It just goes on. Okay, so what's the best way to survive an earthquake? Right, the chat says, you know, we're, we're due for a major earthquake in California. What's the best way to survive an earthquake in your economic life? A social earthquake, a political earthquake, a real you know, geological earthquake. Right, the best way to survive inflation, the best way to survive unemployment, the best way to survive heartbreak, the best way to survive a health crisis. Right? The best way to survive loss. Right? The best way to survive all these things is to have community, to have friends, to know people who live on your block, to be tight with people, to have the best possible relationships you can have with everybody. You should want to have the best possible relations you can have with the doorman, with your boss, with your co-workers, with your neighbors, with people you go to church and synagogue with. Right? That's the best way to survive inflation and loss and tribulation and peril and disease and earthquakes, right? The best protection is connection. The best protection is connection. Friendships, be on good terms with your family, your extended family, your neighbors, be on the best terms with everyone possible. And so you can phrase things in ways that minimize damage to your most important relationships and Optimize your chances to build on those relationships. On and on, Brosif as well. Uh, I'm sure there's a couple other names. He says he does not care. Fuck. All right, here we go. This is, I think, principles with Ali. All right. Principles are innocence of children. Is the beauty and the femininity of a woman? Is the aggressive, mean masculinity of a man? That's just bizarre. Okay, that's kind of just insane. He's just unhinged. It's, not, it's also inauthentic as well. Um, this guy, so this guy said that he would offer $50,000 if they could send Ali to jail and, and, and it was for something else. And Milo goes, does it matter if he goes down for child sex offenses instead? I'd like to agree on a charity with you for the money to go to God bless Milo. 
Uh, okay, here we go. Ollie fires back. He says, Marjorie Taylor Greene paid Milo $100,000 to ghostwrite her book. Uh -huh. Does that matter? Like, what a deflection. Like, who gives a shit? He says, Milo is a pederast, a thief, and someone who bragged about working with the FBI over Charlottesville. That last one is definitely true. Uh, you know, with Signs v. Kessler and all that shit, uh, he made his whole vault available to the feds. And that's in the court documents for Signs v. Kessler. That's a matter of public record. Milo made several of her congressional staff feel uncomfortable. Milo lived at Marjorie's second home. Uh, Milo says this is a damaging and disgusting lie. I would never agree to ghostwrite a book for uh, this person. The most powerful person. The most powerful person in Congress for such a pitiful sum. <laughs> so people really get in trouble for things they say on live streams and podcasts compared to things that you write. So when you're writing a text message or an email, right, uh, you're writing any kind of document, all right, then think about how that would look in court. How would that look if everybody knew what you were writing? Right, that's even more important than monitoring what you say. <laughs> All right. By the way, I just got a DM from someone saying they're watching our show in their living room and their family thought they were watching like the real news. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Let's go. All right. Oh, we in a second. Guys, uh, keep them coming. All the minions are going around asking your former acquaintances if you owe them money. And Milo goes, they need not bother. The answer is yes. <laughs> well, at least Milo's being honest there. He's like, yeah, I owe a lot of people a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, what's this here? Let's play this. If you've been contacted by... Oh, this is his... Okay, so when... Uh... When Milo went straight and embraced uh, traditional Christianity, I said, there's a very easy test whether this is a genuine religious turn by Milo, whether or not he has had a genuine transformative experience. And same with uh, Richard Spencer when he talks about how he's changed and he looks back with horror, things you've done in the past. If you are taking steps to make amends to people you've harmed, then... You're, you're probably making a genuine change, but I was completely unaware of uh, Milo taking any steps, and I'm so far I'm unaware of Richard Spencer taking any steps to make concrete amends to people they've harmed. Therefore, in the absence of that evidence, I'm highly skeptical of any genuine moral, spiritual, religious, psychological change on their part. Add. If he's asked you for sex, be contacted by Ali Alexander Akbar. If he's asked you for sex. Wait, there's a phone number? There's a, there's Stop a, Ali. There's a Stop Ali phone number? Stop Ali. Offered money in exchange for explicit photographs. And especially if you're underage, please contact us. Call 833-STOP-ALI. That's 833-STOP-ALI. That's so good. You can also contact us if you have information about lawbreaking, including but not limited to communications with underage boys, stealing funds from fundraisers, embezzlement, fraud, threats, and other federal crimes. Visit the Ali files on Telegram or contact us at m at milo.net. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. That was a bit fucked, the audio mixing there. Like, it's the Ali files, everybody. The Ali files, let's fucking go. All right, that's that's, to the next slide. That's so, that's so fucking joking. We're going to be here all night long. I know, it's not ending, folks. We're going, we're going. Uh, here we're we go. Going. So this is another person, Michigan Zoomer, steps forward. Thanks for calling out Ali Alexander. I used to have an online friend who showed me he was getting thousands of dollars on Venmo from Ali trying to get nude pictures and trying to convince him to fly out to see him. Isn't that like, Michigan's you know what the craziest part about that is, is that Ollie didn't even get the nude pictures. He's so thirsty for young boys that he paid thousands of dollars trying Hopefully. to. Be... Oh, here is a clip from a victim, I... apparently, of Ali. So this is an actual Ollie file. This is the All story right, we'll of the Luke. actual Ali file. Well, let's just uh, read these three super chats here. Now, Moon, 420, thank you so much. Love the new studio, boys. And thanks. Fucked. Okay, let me try to... It's all in caps. He says, yo, guys, I've always felt 
That's the whole point of AF was recruiting young boys for this very reason. Uh, I bet if AF recruitment offices looked like the Foot Clan TMNT, the Foot Clan TMNT recruitment strategies. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for the support, support there, bro. All and right. We got RPG for twenty bucks. What up, RPG? Red Pill Gang Gang TV saying the old casino setup was the Circus Circus. New casino setup is Caesar's Palace. Yeah. Well done, bros. It was definitely worth the wait. Holy fuck! Could that never be more up? Circus Circus is a shithole. Is it? It sucks. Oh, it's shit. No. All right, let's play Thank this. So I think we're gonna Good play this probably without interruption. Yeah. But this is a case file. Because me um, via Instagram DM, and I believe that he um, saw me like some of the ideologically ideological dark web contents, and um, from nowhere really he began talking to me and telling me I took an interest, and he was curious to find out more about me, apropos of nothing, and um, laid on to me kind of advances and compliments, and um, that's how it began really. What tools did Ali use to attract you? <laughs> so if he said something on his Twitter profile saying... So Ricardo came into the chat at the beginning of the show, said if you talk about Ali Alexander, that you will get the, the muck on you, that if you stare into the abyss, the abyss will stare into you. Well, there are things that you can do when you're dealing with filth, right? If you literally have to pick up filth, you can wear gloves and you can cleanse afterward. So no, I, I don't think it's inherent that uh, by becoming aware of filth that is out there or paying attention to you know disgusting antisocial evil criminal things going on that you become infected but there are steps that you have to take to prevent yourself from being infected to use gloves to cleanse to you know do whatever is necessary to stay centered to have priorities to have good people in your life and yeah then you can indulge or you can't, you know, pay attention to the darkness without having the darkness take over your life. We're looking for digital editors, people who are, um, they uh, are into American politics in some capacity. Um, those turned out to be entirely um, false uh, kind of opportunities. How quickly did the conversation turn sexual? I think in the very first exchange, he wanted to know um, if I had a girlfriend. I sort of um, brushed it off, didn't really answer it. Um, he then said, oh, well, I would have asked you if you had a boyfriend. And um, that struck me as a strange thing to say from someone who um, allegedly is professional. And um, no, I thought it was entirely inappropriate. He told me, um, Dude, wait, hang he on. sort of, yeah, did you think it was inappropriate? It's beyond It's like the definition of inappropriate. Told me, um, he sort of implied that I wasn't um, reaching my full potential. And a pattern I've noticed um, is that he will say, should you want to meet me, then I'll be more than happy to help you. But um, he, he wanted to be controlling, I think. And... You can tell, like, Somehow. he's really uncomfortable recounting this. Yeah. Like, I, I see a lot of sincerity in this testimony, to be honest. Yeah, no, no oh, for sure, definitely. No, let me just stretch that out there. Very cool. Again, this sort of idea of him being overbearing comes in. He's a bit of a parent. He takes, takes charge all the time. So, Was he never promised anything. When he asked you, why aren't you my Wales boy, what did you understand that to mean? 
This is fucked. I think it meant that he... Um, we all know what it meant. Yeah. There's certainly the factor of having to control the interaction and the defensive nature of why aren't you my Wales boy? Um, again, it, it disappointed me because somehow it didn't even make sense in terms of syntax and the phrasing. And... Um, we play a huge role in the type of people who enter our life. So people who get solicited like this, it's not like they're just uh, innocent lambs, all right? We play a huge role in determining who comes into our life, who says things to us, who propositions us. So there are people who exert a really strong force field where they would never get propositioned this way. And the more clarity you have right, about life, about yourself, the stronger a force field you can exert. But you don't want to be going through life with the weak, you know, force field that other people are just constantly trying to penetrate. Right? People just get a sense of who they can take advantage of. And this person obviously gives off a vibe and all these people who apparently were solicited by Ali Alexander, they give off a vibe of, you know, take advantage of me. And if you put off that vibe and you stop Ali Alexander, there'll just be other people lining up to take advantage. So some people can't help but go from being screwed over to being screwed over to being screwed over. So individuals who are in constant drama, individuals who are being screwed over, like individuals who are taken advantage of, individuals who are ripped off, they played a huge role in their own destruction until you develop the fortitude and the clarity, all right, to... You know, know who to connect to and who to run away from this you know sort of predatory behavior will just focus on you again and again and again predators focus on people who are vulnerable right we can move away from being vulnerable to being stronger and clarity plays a huge role in that and then connecting with good people that will train you in a positive direction make you less vulnerable to this kind of predatory behavior. It tells you something of the nature of this person. The messages from Ali um, become very explicitly and graphically sexual in nature uh, at some points, and they always seem to be interlaced with uh, professional promises, uh, insinuations, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, the, 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 there's a sort of intertwining of sexual demands and promises with professional promises and uh, kind of dangling opportunities. Were you aware when this was happening that that is um, a classic uh, symptom of uh, predation? If I cast my mind back, Probably not. However, very early on, I kind of understood, no, this person, um, you know, he's not criminal. He's, um, he behaves like someone with some sort of personality disorder. When I received his texts of a sexual nature, um, I kind of um, humored him. I didn't really buy into um, anything that he offered or anything that he um, kind of laid on me. Was it clear to you that there was a sexual component to the, the deal if he were to fly you over to America, as he promised to, or offered to, um, was, it, was it clear to you that, that it was a sexual component to that conversation? Definitely. Um, okay, I mean, like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think that he um, projected some of his own fantasies onto me, and um, the messages would start normally, but then um, he would suddenly um, turn on this oh. sort of sexual persona of his. Do you think that you may have been at risk? I think I would have been at risk. The failure to recognise uh, boundaries between him and others. So certainly I don't doubt it for a second. I understood it as being something that a an authority, such as a parent, 
um, would have been like not at all um, in keeping with someone. Um, but if you have a good relationship with your father, if you have a good relationship with your mother, you're much less likely to have people who are going to try to hit on you and take advantage of you like this. If you have a good relationship with your siblings, with your employer, with people at your church or synagogue, right, you're much less likely to be in this kind of vulnerable situation. You know, what type of animals are the most vulnerable? Those who are living outside of the herd. Right? If you go through life on the margins of the herd, right, you're in much more trouble and in much more danger than if you live life inside the herd. You really want to live inside the herd. Recovery comes from living inside the herd. You show up early to meetings. You help set things up. You help make the coffee. You stay after meetings. You fellowship with people. You make friends in a good recovery community or in a good church or a good synagogue or whatever, you know, uplifting groups that you're a part of. If you have, you know, family, you develop your relationships with your family. And if you have a good relationship with mom, dad, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, all right, you're going to be much less likely to this type of uh, predatory behavior. Who was in politics. So the fact he said himself, um, I'm sorry if I'm overbearing, it struck me as slightly, um, how shall I put this, slightly pathological in a sense. He asked you in several different places, several different times, um, directly and explicitly to perform sex acts on him, which you declined to do. Um, when he asked for those things, he asked, for instance, do you want me to fuck you or are you just going to blow me? Um, you declined. Um, the guy but even before that, he added, I don't need you to be happy. What went through your mind when you received those messages back to me? So when I was, when I was, wait, the, the day Reagan got shot, okay, I was walking home from, from school I got off the bus. I was walking alone. So this is something like March 1981. So I was 14 years of age. And I walked you know, down, down the road and I passed a guy who was sitting in his car masturbating. It was like, ah, I'd never seen a man masturbating before. Like I wasn't even masturbating at that point in my life. I didn't start that habit till my junior year of high school. So I was a port. I kept walking. And soon this guy drives up beside me and asks me if I want to ride. You know, I said no. Like, I had family. I had friends. You know, that's not the type of thing that I was going to engage in. And thank God, like a minute later, you know, a car full of friends, you know, drive up beside me and ask me if I want to ride. So another time I was out for a walk on a Sunday afternoon and, you know, some dude, you know, drives up in a car and, you know, asks me if I want a blowjob. Like, no, I don't want to. You know, I don't want a blowjob. I said, no, thank you. And I just ran off. So usually we get our sense of morality from our fathers. We get our sense of being social and connected to other people from our mothers. Right. If we have any kind of relationship there, you know, we shouldn't be attracted to this. I heard psychotherapists say that all of their gay, you know, male homosexual clients, right, have very poor relations with the father that uh, boys who grow up with bad relations with the father, they come to eroticize male attention, and then that turns into a homosexual inclination. But uh, people who have at least a decent relationship with their father, they're going to be much less vulnerable to this kind of uh, behavior. So if you have people who care about you, you're going to be much more likely to care about yourself, and therefore you're going to be much less you know, likely to 
you know, be, be vulnerable to this. I, I lived out of my car for about nine months when I first moved to Los Angeles. And so that put me into a vulnerable situation. And so I went to live with a guy who was producing a movie that I was in. And he wanted me, you know, to apply this massage machine to his shoulders. So I was happy to apply the massage machine to his shoulders. He wanted me to apply the massage machine to his back. I was happy to apply the massage machine to his back. He wanted me to apply the massage machine to his buttocks. I said, no. And I wouldn't do it. And uh, I'd stayed with him for about two or three weeks. And he kicked me out because I was not willing to go along with that butt play. Uh, I'd moved to Los Angeles in 1994. And uh, Jules Zentner, member of the UCLA faculty and a faculty advisor for pre-law, pre-med students, I was staying with him. And uh, he came into my room one night and said, do I, do I want a blowjob? You know, I said, no. And I had to be prepared. I said no to the blowjobs, you know, said no to the butt massaging. And, you know, I went out on my own and I lived out of my car. So if you live out of your car, if you're in a vulnerable position, you're going to be much more likely to, you know, get into trouble like this. You're going to be much more vulnerable to predators. So be a responsible adult. Don't be like 40, right? Have the money, have the resources, have the, the family, friends, connections, community, where you don't have to live out of your car and, you know, be wide open to this kind of predation. Like all sorts of people do all sorts of things that they regret because there's something else that they really want. I was an actor for a year or two. I went on auditions and there were a couple of auditions where they wanted me to kiss a bloke. And I said, no, right, that's not on. I remember telling Dennis Prager about it and he said, yeah, you should absolutely say no. You know, don't, don't accommodate that whatsoever. So if you have clarity, if you have friends, if you have mentors, if you have guidance, if you have community, if you have people you don't want to disappoint, right? if you have things that you stand for, if you have a holy book, right? if you're connected with other people, and if you're in you know, a solid financial and social situation, you're going to be much less vulnerable to this kind of horrible behavior. Okay. Back. I don't need you to be happy. Um, and it's quickly followed by uh, these demands for, for sexual services. I think it's classic um, predation. Um, someone who's... Look, for, for years, I would go to, go to a party, I'd go to a social gathering, and I'd get immediate sense of, like, which women I could get into bed. So these were adult women, right? It was consensual, but it was still coming from a somewhat lazy and predatory instinct in me. I didn't want to put a lot of effort into getting these women into bed. I didn't want to spend a lot of money. I would just get a sense, oh, you know, this woman, I can get her into bed tonight. Or this woman, I just need to take her out once for dinner and I can get her into bed. So I had some sort of radar that would pick up on, you know, what kind of women were broken and, and vulnerable for screwing around with. And when you're vulnerable and when you're sending out a signal that you're wide open for being screwed over, all sorts of people are going to line up to screw you over, whether it's sexually or financially or socially or culturally or politically. It says to you, um, I don't want you. And you're continually um, talks to you neck. in some kind of sordid um, manner, to put it mildly. Um, 
think I told him um, at several points, actually, um, you can do better. You're better than this. You shouldn't be doing it. Um, and yet he continually uh, charged on saying, Yes, yeah, so I wonder if this guy did any reflection on his own role. So for years, I have had abusive bosses, right? I played a huge role in that. All my friends, right? My normal friends would not put up with the, the abuse for a minute. They would have just walked out right away. I put up with it for years because that was normal to me, given the way I, I was treated by people when I, I was young, right? Being abused was, was being verbally abused was just normal to me. I was you know, smacked around and hit quite a bit as a kid. So, you know, this air of abuse and danger was just normal to me. I had to grow up and overcome it. I had to do work. So when people are screwing you over, when people are taking advantage of you, that's saying something important about you that you need to get help with, right? This is not just something, oh, that you need to work on yourself. You need to go get help because you're obviously stuck in these self-destructive spirals where being abused just feels normal to you. Right, Ali Alexander did not proposition just, you know, anyone, right? He propositioned those who gave off a vulnerability vibe. And so the the victims of predation, right, they play an enormous role in their own misery. And until you get help for that, it's going to happen to you again and again and again and again. Right? We play a huge role in our own misery. Saying um, that he wanted to uh, kind of use me. Holy. In the direct messages between you, uh, apropos of nothing out of nowhere, he texts you, bet you're getting fucked in that bar, bitch. Presumably in response to something. Uh, most people have some instincts to use you if they can get away with it. To the extent that you allow people to denigrate you, to degrade you, to use you, to abuse you, other people will do that. I had one girlfriend, to the best of my knowledge, that I yelled at. Why did I yell at her? Because she allowed it. And I didn't just start out yelling at her on the first date, right? This is like weeks, months, you know, into an increasingly frustrating relationship that felt like a millstone around my neck. But I didn't start out yelling, right? When I started out being derogatory and putting her down, she put up with it. And so I just got worse and worse and worse. So as soon as people start you know, violating your boundaries, being unnecessarily derogatory and abusive, you have to put a stop to it right then and if you don't have the the right stuff to be able to do that you have to go get help because people in general will take advantage of you and screw you over to the extent that they can that's just how people are wired i, I notice that the people will put you down in very predictable ways because they will just reach for whatever's available and so we usually tend to give people the swords with which they stab us and it's up to us to get these things sorted so that we're no longer providing people with a whole variety of implements with which they can stab us. And you posted on your public Instagram right, profile. Okay. I think we get the idea yeah. here with this um, case study. Yeah. Let's move on to the next slide, because they're in the interest of brevity. Um, let's get <laughs> brevity. This is another one. I then in 2020 decided to become Catholic. And so, you know, showing stuff from 2017 and 2018, acting like the accuser, trying to throw my, my, you know, sexual activity. I lived a sexually liberated life. I drank alcohol. I did all kinds of other stuff. But 99% of the people on this, on this call do. What you won't find is an accuser. What you won't find is proof. What you won't find is a victim. I got the world in my hands. Milo. The audio mixing. Milo. 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 Can we please, Milo. can we please hire Normalize the audio, dude. Like, Jesus Christ. It's just sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on. Bloody hell, stop, Milo, come on, work on the mixing, bro. It's just awful. Man, come on, come on, man. Alexander messaged me on Good Friday of this year, 2023. 
Ali. On Good Friday? On Good on Friday. Good Friday. Like, wow. Jesus the Christ. shamelessness of it all. He's still he, doing what? it. He's still doing it. That's wild. Tell me supposed personal information about Ye and claim that he and Ye are quote unquote easily tempted. After being in contact with Ellie, so now, it wait, obvious so now, that he- yeah, Not only has these guys fucked your image up, probably forever, yeah. at least somewhat, but now Ali's like- They use your you... name, they, they drop your name for clout to fuck children and, and young guys. This Whoa. guy was 19 years old. It's still Whoa. grooming. Ali is almost 40 years old. And Let's he's testing 19 year old young groipers to try and have sex with them. After being in contact with Ali, it became obvious that he wasn't interested in anything except my sexuality and willingness to meet up with him. Ali abuses his previous connection with Ye to groom young boys and grift Christians. So we got a tweet here from Richard Spencer, Marjorie Taylor, Taylor Green, and Milo will probably do more to discredit Christianity than Nietzsche and Dawkins. That's his quote on tweets from Patriot Takes. White nationalist Nick Fuentes posted a text message from Marjorie Taylor Green's former congressional intern Milo Yiannopoulos showing an unannounced ghostwritten book for Marjorie Taylor Green titled The Case for Christian Nationalism. Apparently, Marjorie Taylor Green will be selling a matching King James version of the Bible too. A Christian nationalism book, a matching Bible. Don't look they've been announced yet. I've given permission for these messages to be shared because I was shocked he would try to claim he is a born-again Christian and this behavior is in the past when it is still happening today. Holy. You know, somebody said, oh, this guy's like 19 years old. Skip. It's like, do you not see a problem but, with him? You know, it's, 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 it's a power uh, balance issue where Ali is saying, I have influence, I have access. Let me, you know, do do what you need to do with me. And I have this influence, I have this access. It's still grooming. It's still wrong. It's still degenerate. It's still gay. Well, and it, also, and it adds to the totality of evidence. It also uh, shows to people who might ever work with Ali Alexander that he will use your fucking name and your influence. And by the way, like, like burn your fucking trust. They did like reveal personal info about you just to suck some young boy's cock. Yeah. Like, why would you ever fucking work with him? Well, because he's got blackmail on you or he's a federal informant or whatever it is. Yeah. I'd love to know. I'm sure we will find out. Um, this is just a reiteration of okay. that. Yep. Uh, holy. All right. People... This is a lot of... <laughs> let's continue on. Okay. Uh, All right. Okay, those are those texts. Yeah. Yeah. These are those texts from Max. Okay. Let's move. Let's go on. Do, do, do. You guys can pause on any of these if you, if you do yeah. want to read them. But we have so much more show that we have to get through. <laughs> Here's Nicholas, who is 15 years old. Nicholas was 15 years old when Ali Alexander Akbar asked him for sexually explicit photographs. An impressionable and inexperienced minor, Nicholas reasoned that this was just how people get into politics. Although he was and is heterosexual, he sent Akbar several images, a number of which constitute child pornography. It seemed, you know, like Harvey Weinstein, he now says, sort of transactional. Although Akbar insisted on using the encrypted Signal app for the majority of their interactions, Snapchat messages have survived, which show Ali informed that Nicholas was 15, nonetheless offering to buy the boy alcohol, inquiring how best to send him gifts without his parents' knowledge, and demanding jack-off material. Conversation records show Akbar calling Nicholas his puppy. He asked repeatedly when they might meet in person for sex. He also dangled career opportunities and introductions, none of which ever materialized. That's very sad, but you know what's not sad? What? Pit boss for $40, let's go. Saying pretty soon we're gonna be hearing about how Ali bought knee-high socks for wipers. I was on wish list. AF is full of simps. I was referring to, to, to Ralph there, but thank you. Pit boss for that massive. Okay, I think that will do it for today. Take care. Bye-bye.